Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. We're in such a rush yeah. that I didn't even take a, a drink of water before doing this, and now I'm, I'm regretting that. I can tell. Ready yeah. Because I'm, I'm raspy, and also I've seen, I think, something like... Four thousand percent more movies than you have this this time because you were well you were out of town for a long time and you're you're working a lot. Yeah, this um, this happens to be this uh, this little period where I was out of town at the International Christian Film Festival. I've been grading forty papers, and once I just got done with those. I then was grading 40 midterms. And so I don't have a whole lot. Of, I didn't have a whole lot of time. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I only saw a couple of movies and some TV shows and the TV shows were watched fairly passively while in hotel rooms. So. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I'll just get started then. Right. Um, I apparently had plenty of time uh, because the, uh, the night after uh, we did our last movie journal, mm-hmm. I was supposed to go to this thing um, after work it's a big thing. There's going to be a reception and like Leonard Malton was going to be there. It sounded oh. exciting, but I had a really shitty day at work and I was like, no, I'm just going home. I was like, I know what I was thinking is I just want to hang out with my wife. Maybe go out to dinner with my wife. Yeah. Forgetting that my wife had already told me she had plans with her friend. So mm. I was home alone, which it's kind of basically I was in a bad enough mood. That's kind of probably what I needed. Sure. Um, and what I ended up doing because I'm a weirdo. This is not a normal like comfort movie. I ended up watching in one sitting Again, not what I planned to do. Um, D.W. Griffith's Intolerance. Three hours and 17 minutes long. It was on Fandor. And I was like, I was like, that's delightful. I'll start this. This has been on my list for a while. And you hadn't, oh, so and you hadn't seen it before. I'd never seen it before. Okay. Um, and I would, every time there's either a um, AFI Fest or tcm classic fest and i've been i'm spending a lot of time at hollywood and highland i mm-hmm. start thinking i need to see intolerance because as you know if you've been to the hollywood and highland mall the mall itself is based on the babylon set from intolerance yeah which, which is makes, super weird makes and total sense a part of me wants this like just as an experiment hang out in the courtyard for an hour and stop people at random and ask them sure do you know what these like elephants and shit are, and the griffins and shit are about well and there's like a big a big staircase there as well so all you got to do is like throw a baby carriage down those stairs and then you'll just be making reference to uh, <laughs> just the golden age of silent yeah, film sure um but yeah i'd never seen intolerance have you seen it uh not in its entirety i've seen we we watch a very large chunk of it in my film history class uh because i don't know if you know or not uh, film history these days is steering away Away from Birth of a Nation and towards yeah. Intolerance, which uh, is understandable. I've seen all of Birth of a Nation. See, that's one that I don't. Re- I've never seen all of Birth of a Nation. I saw the clips that they showed us in. Um, uh, well, I actually, saw clips in two. Cl- in high school, I saw clips from Birth of a Nation in a Civil War history sure. class. Um, uh, and then clips in like, film school but yeah. i've never sat through the whole thing and i've never really wanted to um yeah. because of its reputation uh, well, but it's, I'm, yeah it's it's not an easy thing to watch i'll say that yeah and i'd seen uh broken blossoms that i've talked about on the show before mm-hmm. um which is good but weirdly like it's weird that broken blossoms is later than intolerance because it feels more um i guess it just feels more of its time in terms of uh, aesthetically in, mm-hmm. in the way it's paced. Whereas intolerance is not only is it, it's the original cloud Atlas and that it's jumping around through time and telling yeah. all these different stories that are, um, sort of thematically, thematically related. It's also a more exciting 
movie. Obviously, yeah. not, I don't mean just um, uh, plot wise. Obviously, there's a lot more going on than in Broken Blossoms. Um, no. But I mean, in terms of uh, uh, technique, it's not only is obviously like the it's known for the the set like the set of the the babylon set that i'm talking about the gates of babylon which is uh enormous so much yeah. so that i swear unless i read this wrong <laughs> yeah like there's actually a in the title card like the intertitle on the film there's a there's a reference to 300 foot replica built <laughs> like uh, because a bunch of the intertitles have notes at the bottom most of them are just like historical reference oh, okay. like no this you know this name was the name of the God worshiped by whatever, like oh, stuff okay. like that. But there's one that it was like, no, 300 foot replica of gates of Babylon. And I was like, are they just like patting themselves on the that back? That feels like the studio being like, all right, look, <laughs> even if people don't get into these multiple stories, they will appreciate what they are seeing. It's like when people say like, Oh, the money's really up there on the screen. It's like, in this case it was like, no, we are making absolutely <laughs> yeah. clear. Like imagine, imagine if like Spider-Man was swinging through, New York, and then there was a title card that was like the visual effects for this cost thirty two yeah. million dollars. I like the idea that about ten minutes uh, ten minutes later, an intolerance a card comes up that says, "No, seriously, look at all these zeros," and, just, yeah. and um, then it just cuts to shots of money uh, in big stacks. Uh, yeah. So, what yeah, did you think just, of intolerance? Um, I, 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 I'm already. Um, I've already said that I, I, I thought it was amazing. Uh, obviously, I ended up watching all of it without getting up. Um, uh, that's an achievement, which is an achievement at three hours and 17 minutes. Um, uh, and I, 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 I just, the, um, I don't even want to say X there. I mean, there are for real, like action scenes, like there's dude, dude just like legit get their heads cut off in this movie yep. <laughs> um, and get like disemboweled and stuff. And like, that's just pretty cool. But what I'm talking about is the, the action of the way the movie is cut is, um, uh, it feels, I, I don't know. It, it, it I feel like a, a rube, like saying that I'm supposed to be like a film expert, you know, or have some expertise or at least people listen to me all the time. Sure. And then to, for me to be like impressed by something that everyone's already supposed to be impressed about, but it's like, it, it's worth going back to look, I guess if you've seen it or if yeah. you're like me, you haven't, um, to, to, to see stuff that I remember talking about this, uh, it was like two years ago on the movie journal. We talked about, uh, Carl Theodore Dreyer's vampire, mm-hmm. um, and how there are camera moves and techniques that feel like they could have been in a movie, you know, in the last 20 or 30 years, yeah. you know, they, they feel new and this isn't quite that, but in terms of, you know, there's a, you know, they're in the, I guess the modern day, quote unquote modern day, it's over a hundred years old, this movie. Um, but, yeah. um, in the modern day, uh, present day, uh, segment there's like a a little bit of a, a shootout or someone gets accidentally shot mm-hmm. and um someone else happens to be in the right place in time to like be suspected of having done the shooting i don't right. know if you remember this part yeah um but the 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 pacing and the cutting and like the close-ups of the the handgun in that sequence are as exciting as the big you know 300 foot replicas and people getting their heads chopped off yeah <laughs> stuff dudes legit getting their heads chopped off which is a thing is you said a moment ago <laughs> yeah. uh, when talking about dw griffith's intolerance yeah well so. that's how look i'm a millennial that's how we talk <laughs> no I, I should say i guess legit is probably like 
old. I, I should say dead ass. That's what millennials say. Well, that's new to me. I uh, don't know yeah. that one. Uh, yeah. I'll have to ask my students. Hey, students, if I said the word dead ass, what, what does that mean? And then they all get like very, very solemn face like, oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, that, dead ass means you're not fucking around, I guess, is what I mean. All right. Well, then uh, I'm dead ass serious. You guys need to start showing, showing up to section because only half of you showed up to get your papers back. That's neither here nor there. <laughs> um okay do you feel because uh, i'm gonna move on to my next movie okay and, but this is in keeping what what i was saying with the last movie and i've said this on the movie journal so many times now because i'm apologizing for it okay i made a resolution at the beginning of 2015 to watch more old movies and that mm-hmm. means filling in a lot of blanks and sometimes i feel like i'm doing a really good job of that but because the movie journal, the existence of the movie journal means that I there's like less transparency in like I can't watch something that's supposed to be a classic and then the next time it comes out in the podcast be like, oh yeah, that, I know that, I know that movie because now the listeners know. Oh, I just saw it. Oh, okay, you know what I'm yeah, saying? Got it. Got and it. I, so I feel embarrassed about how many movies I that are classics I hadn't seen. Yeah, but you're seeing them now. Right, but I, I just I, I just feel like I constantly have to uh, qualify this. No, it's, I totally understand. There's this element, you know, it's the imposter syndrome thing. It's this yeah. feeling of being a fraud. And if you're putting yourself out there as any kind of authority, um, and then you you don't know something or you don't you haven't seen something, it's almost as though once we all decided, hey, we're movie people, that somehow we just like Neo in the Matrix, just get all these movies uploaded into right. our brain. Yeah. But that's not how it works. Yeah. Okay, so I finally saw Jacques Tati's Playtime. Oh, I do love that. I love that movie. I can't imagine not loving that yeah, movie. No, yeah. it, uh, it's it's so much so much fun. Um, uh, even though I think like when it gets a little, I think the satire of it feels a little thin. You know, like the whole idea, like everyone comes, the tourists come to Paris and they come to see not. Not the Eiffel Tower or the or the old stuff. They come to see the new modernist buildings that look the same as in every other city. Like when, yeah. he, when he walks past the travel agency, every, the poster for every city has front and center a big modernist office yeah. building that looks exactly like the one they're standing in. And that that I, feel, I think is it, a was that a thing at the time? I don't know yeah. because I'm pretty sure if tourists go to France, they go to the Eiffel Tower. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't. Yeah, I don't know what that. Uh, is necessarily supposed to mean, but it doesn't, it doesn't really matter because, um, uh, it just, you know, uh, Jacques says he's like, uh, his, that, 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 that animated film, the illusionist, yeah. um, was based on a Jacques Tati, I guess, thing that didn't get made. Yeah. And it does, playtime does kind of feel like, um, it, other than someone giving Jacques Tati a, just a boatload of money to make this movie. Sure. The only other way to make it would have been animation because it yeah. requires so much immersion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I, I, I mean, I also like that it's, it's essentially a series of sketches. There's not really a story. Yeah. I, and even the sketches don't feel totally like sketches. Some, I mean, maybe sketches in the, actual sense of the word just uh-huh. like a sketch of a of a place or or right. a tone and sometimes there are little situations that will happen and right, little like mini the, stories um, the guy trying to sell the um 
the doors that slam silently. Yeah. And then it turns into a farce where someone's actually like angrily like slamming doors, but no sound. There's no sound whatsoever. Which is what farces are all about, uh, as we all know. Yeah. Nobody knows that better than the French. Uh, yeah. Uh, but then, of course, it culminates in the it's nearly the second half of the movie. Right. The opening night at the restaurant, which is um, both. It, it's absolutely uh, a joy and entertaining. But it's also if you you know, when you think about it it's just gobsmacking how yeah. how perfect how perfectly calibrated and executed yeah. that entire sequence is and how it seems to i mean it seems to take place in real time but apparently you know it's takes place over hours because the sun's oh, yeah. up when they leave in the morning that's true um but but uh it's it's just beautifully choreographed chaos and i absolutely love the uh um the the brash american character in the in the restaurant i think he's a delight yeah of course there needs to be but he's not like but i like that for all the things that jack tati seems to be making fun of in this movie that american seems like he's ripe for for mockery but really he's the reason everyone has a good time well i think there's there's it's been a number of years since i've seen the movie but i tend to remember it in terms of the emotions i felt while watching it and then certain sequences uh, i do remember the door sequences you're talking about uh and the brash american and now that you do mention it i feel like tati has tremendous affection for literally everything on every single thing on screen <laughs> yeah uh i think there he finds humor in it but he's not laughing at it uh which there's a you know the fine line there but uh and then i also find a, a fair amount of melancholy in the overall in the film in general but that might just be the way i take things i don't know do you find but it's a delight i don't mean to say that it isn't that um but i find a certain yeah. kind of, of sadness to it um i don't know i didn't feel sad i feel like it's set up for sadness because it's like imagine brazil not the nation but terry gilliam's brazil okay except everyone still kind of likes each other and is okay with it. Yeah. That's kind of what yeah. it was, like you've got this whole, there's the one plot line, the beginning plot line where, where Monsieur, uh, Hulo or whatever mm-hmm. is at that office building for right. an appointment. He gets lost. He, and then, um, it's delightful, of course. Uh, and then the guy who's like supposed to, um, meet him ends up breaking his nose, walking into the door and then spends like the rest of that first half of the movie. You constantly see him in different scenes, like looking yeah. for him. And then they finally run into each other and it's like, Oh, Hey, it's, <laughs> you, it feels like it's building to something like yeah. sinister. Like he's this bureaucrat or something, but it's a positive thing whenever, uh, it gets to where it's going. Yeah. Maybe the, maybe the melancholy is something I brought to it. Um, at the time, it's hard to say, but, uh, now, now that you mention it, like I do own it, I should probably, it's been years. I should watch it again, but I do remember loving it quite a bit. Did you, and you, which, which do you like more intolerance or playtime? Uh, wow. That's, that's hard to say. <laughs> probably playtime, but okay. that's hard to say. Um, uh, and then, uh, the last thing I was going to say, my favorite character in the movie is the waiter at the restaurant Mm -hmm. who is not interested in delivering dishes, but in walking around, fixing his hair and making eyes at all the women in the restaurant. He's introduced, I think, uh, primping himself in the mirror. And then his boss is like, Hey, you got to deliver this fucking food or whatever. And Um, I remember at the time thinking of that, looking at that waiter, thinking of the American and thinking like, okay, there's the big brash American. uh And then there's the stereotypical French waiter. uh uh, And just thinking again to, to like Tati finds delight in, in both of these. All right. And then, um, 
I'm going to run through the next three because okay. they're all part of the same thing. Actually, Playtime was as well. This is the first time that I went to, um, even though it's the 21st year in, in existence, uh, Colcoa. Do you know okay. what Colcoa is? I know because of uh, your posts on the website. Okay, so Colcoa, uh, it's it's... The full name is the Colcoa Film Festival, and Colcoa means City of Lights, City of Angels. Um, no, the full name is the Colcoa French Film Festival. I didn't say French the first time. Right. Um, and that's important. It's all like they show some old stuff like Playtime, uh, but mostly their their slogan, their tagline or whatever is a week of French film premieres in Hollywood. Right. So it's basically it's new French movies that have yet to most of them have not had North American premieres at all. Um, right. and they certainly haven't had West coast premieres. Um, um, so this is mostly, yeah, mostly the U S premieres of some French films. Uh, and so, uh, in addition to three to playtime, I saw three, I saw a movie called, uh, everyone's life, uh, which I thought was a, a delight. Um, it's from the director, Claude, uh, Claude Lelouch, who's been around since, um, pretty much the, the new wave, uh, era. Um, and it's a it's sort of typical, um, I think we either did an episode on these kind of movies or we, um, talked about doing an episode on doing these kind of movies where it's, uh, an sort of, uh, interwoven ensemble movie. Right. There's no, uh, you know, there, uh, everyone is like one degree or so, sure. uh, um, uh, distance from everyone else in the movie. Did we do that episode or did we just talk about it? I think we've only talked about it, okay. but we've also... I don't know if we've ever did an, done a whole episode about it, but we've talked about those types of movies on other episodes. Yeah. Okay. Um, but we've never done an official episode, so yeah. by all means, let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, yeah. We, at this point, there's nothing but runway ahead of us. <laughs> uh, That's very depressing. Yeah, we're never actually going to take off. Um, anyway, so everyone's life is uh, just takes place in a, this uh, in the. Uh, French town in Burgundy. Uh, the town is, is it Boone? Brune? No, I can't remember. I knew when I saw the movie, obviously. Uh, and it takes place over the course of their annual uh, jazz fest in the town. And so you've just got a lot of people. Uh, and you've got some, uh, some, some actors you would definitely recognize, like Christopher Lambert and mm-hmm. um, uh, Jean Dujardin. Um, and then do you know who Johnny Halliday is? Name sounds familiar, but no. So he's a big uh, rock star in France. Okay. He's like, um, I guess when I looked him up, people described him as the French Elvis. I think I, I thought he was more like the French Springsteen, but either way, okay. he's a big rock star in France who has never really uh, had you know a career in the U.S. because he sings in French. He sings rock rock and roll music in French. Anyway, I knew him because he. Um, was in a Patrice Leconte film um, called The Man on the Train, I think it was called. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, where he played, not himself, but he played a, um, a gangster who, you know, anyway. Um, in this movie, In Everyone's Life, Johnny Halliday plays two roles. Okay. He plays Johnny Halliday, and he plays a professional Jolly Halliday impersonator. <laughs> um, anyway, so the movie is full of people behaving badly. There's a lot of drunkenness and cheating and um prostitution and corruption and people bribing judges there's a whole like one of the through lines of the movie in addition to jazz is the court system for some reason like that's like the the idea of justice and conviction is a big part of the movie and there are multiple court cases Hmm. that overlap and more than one of the characters like john jadarjian 
uh, sorry, Jean Dujardin is a cop and Christopher Lambert is a, uh, I think he's a, he's an attorney and then uh, a number of the characters are magistrates or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then eventually some of these people might find themselves on trial. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to give any spoilers, right? Uh, but, um, basically it's a lot of people being like sort of generally shitty, but the movie is kind of, eh, it's all right. <laughs> so it's like, it's a weirdly like, uh, I, I think in, in my review, I said something like I, I couldn't, I can't decide if it's like optimistically cynical or cynically optimistic. Ooh, I like that. Uh, but it's basically a movie. It's like, uh, yeah, everyone's pretty awful, but we seem to get by. <laughs> that seems to be the theme of the movie. Oh boy. Um, uh, and, and I, I, I really, I really enjoyed it. Um, that does, by the way, that does tend to be, uh, an element of the movies that, that you're talking about, that these were just this, this, these sweeping films with like a huge ensemble that barely <laughs> interact with each other. I mean, Altman, like almost any time he's made a movie like that, there does t- tend to be an element of, well, everyone is pretty terrible most <laughs> of the time, but, uh, Hey, what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> we all, you know, we all have our moments. Um, uh, yeah, but I also think, I mean, I don't want to get too far into the movie, but I also think that, that, um, the movie is, it, it, the, the politics of the movie, I think are pro institutions, uh, not, not like, you know, asylums, sure. but I mean like the institution of the justice system. I feel like even though we've see, we see time and time again, cor- across the movie, people corrupting it, people bribing yeah. people, you know, uh, uh, judges coming with rulings they know are wrong for whatever personal gain or whatever. It all. It also the the climax of the movie has to do with someone actually like owning up to a crime, and it's a very emotional thing. And it and it and it kind of. Uh, I think the point of the movie is that like um, this this institution isn't perfect, but um, it's it it works more often than not, or it works when no. it counts. Maybe I'm not sure. Not sure. I always agree, yeah. but I think that often is, you find a lot of movies, uh, that are pro institution. Yeah. Like it's uh, yeah. usually the opposite. Uh, okay. And then I saw a movie that I was kind of, I mean, um, n- no offense to anyone involved, but I was kind of sure I was not going to like this movie. I ended up really liking it. Hmm. Um, it's called a bag of marbles or un sac de bill. Um, and it's directed by, it's a French movie, but it's directed by the French Canadian director Christian Duguay, whom, of course, you know, because you and I went to the theater back in Springfield, Missouri, to see *The Art of War*, starring Wesley Snipes. Yes, that's right. And Michael Bean yeah. and Maury Chaykin, <laughs> a movie that I liked, by the way. I will. There are things I insist on. There are that. things I think back on <laughs> uh, favorably. Maury Chaykin being one of them. Uh, yeah, but it was weird to me. That it was like, oh, this is the guy who made that sort of. Um, uh, downer martial arts movie. No. Uh, and now um, he's making a, essentially a Holocaust drama or um, a, a drama that's about uh, characters avoiding the Holocaust. So it, uh, it's based on a, on a true story. And it's uh, there's this family of Jewish um, people living in, in Paris. And as they, they sort of see the writing on the wall, they see what's coming uh, mm-hmm. under the, uh, you know, the, the movie starts, they're already under occupation, but they can see the, the hammer coming down. So first they sort of like split up and flee to the South of France, the, to, to Nice, I think is where it is. And then they get split up again as the Germans keep coming through. And the main character is the youngest son of the family. Um, and, uh, it's, it's just sort of a, you know, 
it's kind of it's episodic but it's this this sort of his uh journey of avoiding the um uh the the nazis and it's it's i think really um it's really powerful because i think because i think sometimes the reason i was sure i was not gonna like this this movie because i think a lot of historical dramas that are based on a true story um to a certain extent they use that well this is true sure and therefore you will be moved by it right. because it's true. And especially in this case, it's the Holocaust. Like, you know, what's not yeah. to be, you know, what are you a monster? Obviously you're going to be moved, but then like, it, but it's like, yeah, but you still have to make a movie. Like you still have to make a yes. piece of art here and, and have a point of view. And I think this movie decides on its point of view. I mean, it's not subtle, but it decides on its not point of view, but it's, it's, it's theme or the thing it's going to hang the movie on, which is the idea that before they split up, when they leave Paris, um, the father tells the youngest youngest son, you know, while you're out there, you know, don't trust these people. And he said, no matter what you do, no matter how uh, sympathetic someone seems, no matter how much they slap you around or whatever happens, don't tell anyone you're Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so the entire movie, um, which is a, it's like a full, it's over two hours, I think, um, is about the, the theme is this kid n- never being able to say who he is. Yeah. Uh, and so of course at the end, you know, spoilers, the war ends, uh, you know, and he's, how's it come out, (laughs) you know, and he's able to be who he, he has been this person the whole time, but he hasn't been able to say it the whole time. That's interesting. Um, and so I like, that's, uh, uh, so it, it has a way in that is different than just like, here's an inspiring true story. Yeah. That's, I mean, you know, you and I say this about world war two movies, but I do feel this way about Holocaust films, which makes me feel kind of like a monster. But, uh, this feeling of, unless you're going to bring something new to it and it could just be a little, just a, a, just a turn in a character or a story, unless you're going to bring something new to it or an aesthetic choice, like son of Saul. Sure. Yeah. Then it feels almost instinctively exploitative to me. Yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah. And, and that is a, that's a, that's a new twist on it. Yeah. Um, which I find interesting. Um, and then finally, uh, I'll just say this last one, uh, to get to, uh, to put it, to put a pin on, um, Colcoa, the last one, this is one I thought I was going to like, it's called heaven will wait. Um, and here's now I've told you something that I do sometimes when I don't like a movie is I'll tell the plot in a way that makes it sound better than it is because sure. I'm like thinking the, but here's the, the here's the, the story. It, it takes place modern day France. It has two stories that are parallel. One is of a girl, a teenage girl who was, um, uh, you know, this is a Western French girl who was radicalized and became a, jihadist right. and got caught trying to sneak into Syria to join uh, and, you know, to become a martyr or whatever she was going to yeah. do. And so the movie is telling the story of her sort of um, her and her family sort of counseling and deprogramming. And the that parallel story, the parallel story is another girl earlier in the process. We see her being sort of oh. um, uh, uh, radicalized, but here's the problem with the movie Okay, is that the movie is not actually interested in these girls at all. It's interested in their parents. Oh. And so it ends up coming across like a bad sort of like uh, scare tactic. Yeah. Like, are your par- are your kids being <laughs> yeah. radicalized? Find out at 11. Like, it has that kind of... <laughs> is the same reason I didn't like Catherine, Hed- uh, Catherine Hardwick's uh, 13? Um, is that it just mm. feel too, felt too... It just feels panicky. Um, and so yeah. the movie got old to me really quick, unfortunately. That may, yeah, I could see that. All right, so that's the end of Kokoa, and that's the end of my first chunk. What did you watch? 
So, okay. Uh, so this is a rewatch for me. Uh, Jen and I are, Jen more so than myself, are big fans of Apollo 13. And the American Cinematheque, specifically I think at the Arrow, they had this three or four night tribute to Bill Paxton. So they showed, that's when they showed um, One False Move. It was a double mm-hmm. bill of uh, Simple Plan and One False Move. That's a pretty good night. Not the yeah. happiest night. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, and so knowing that she's a big Apollo 13 fan and, you know, we were kind of due for a date night. So, um, so we got tickets to that and went to a nice dinner and afterwards saw Apollo 13. And I got to say, uh, so I first saw it on a field trip. Uh, when I was in middle school, I think we went to a like a, an air and space museum and then Apollo 13. So, um, and then I've seen it a couple times since then, and it's never been a film that I've really responded to. And I was wrong. Uh, seeing Very emotional it, movie. I know it always struck me as oddly cold, but seeing it, I'll say this seeing it in the theater and we sat closer than I usually do. Cause I really wanted it to be fairly immersive and it was at the arrow. So it was a nice big theater and you know, and it's not stadium seating. So if you sit up close, you are looking up mm-hmm. at everything that's happening and, uh, it's wonderful. I, I absolutely adore that movie <laughs> now. Just that, an argument, you know, it's it's a good argument for seeing a movie in the theater. Even though I had seen it in the theater, I was young. I didn't understand most of the stuff that was going on. And then since then, I appreciated watching it at home. But the sound and the cinematography and just the the technical elements of it, it is there's a timelessness to that film that works really well because there's uh, there's not one special effect that. Uh, that I could see the seams on like it's it might not have the fluidity of something like gravity but it's it feels similar mm. um except not quite as uh artificially narrative driven um nothing against gravity but like that's a fictional story and right, so they right. play up the emotions whereas this it's much more ensemble based and I did get emotional for the much the same reason that you got emotional uh watching sully uh and it's worth noting that uh more than one lesson we did when we did an episode about sully the companion film was apollo 13 and watching it there's just this this quality of all of these people coming together and just working so hard for three guys and you know it's a weird thing is uh I don't think this is going to be necessarily political so much as a personal thing for me. So I'm a big believer in the, the importance of, uh, do we want to, no, okay, sorry. There's a tow truck in my alley and, uh, it's backing up after we've recorded a couple of recent episodes at my place. Uh, this is nothing. Oh really? Okay. My place is so noisy, not just because of the, fire station and the police station and the airport but also because of my dog that's right yes uh who has a horrible fear of police and firemen and (laughs) it's really unfortunate but uh anyway so you know i i'm I'm a firm believer in the importance of the individual and the importance of a single human life and if you can put a lot of effort into trying to preserve even a single human life Mm -hmm. i think it's worth it but what's odd is there's this there's this part of me that just feels like yeah but you know, look at the amount of resources. I'm thinking of another, 
Tom Hanks film, Captain Phillips, you know, that's one guy. Uh, and then this is three guys. Sully to me makes a great deal more sense mathematically. Cause that's a whole plane full of people. Whereas Plus, this like is the coast guard and like, right. Yeah, everyone does their job. Yeah. And Sully. Yeah. But, and that's, and that's, I guess that's the thing is that like, there, there's part of me that feels like, yeah, how much effort are we willing to put in, uh, for one to save one person? And, uh, I don't know. And this, this film got me thinking of Captain Phillips, got me thinking of Sully and just this idea of like, yeah, but trying to save one person can sometimes be the thing that saves an entire or certainly brings together, but also can redeem an entire society. Um, because it shows that, we're willing to put ourselves aside as much as we can because this person is important in and of themselves and they're important to the people around them. And so there is a ripple effect, I think. So the film got me thinking about, about all of that and just, uh, and it does such a good job of allowing every person who had something important to do. It allows them their moment. Um, Lauren Dean is in the film plays a guy named John. Everyone's name is John, by the way, in the, in in the control room, um, or mission control, pardon me. And, uh, and there's just this moment where everybody's rushing around and he's just this young guy who's just sitting in the back and he says, Hey, wait a second. We're thinking of this all wrong. We need to think in terms of power. If we don't have the, the enough, enough electricity, enough power, then nothing that we're doing here matters. And so then he starts working just this, just one random guy in the midst Uh of dozens in that room has this thought, starts working with Gary Sinise on it. And that's what, that's one of the many things that saves them, you know, and moments like that, I think are really special because not everybody is Ed Harris. Not everybody is Gary Sinise. Those are the people we know about. But I think even in casting lesser known actors in these parts, it almost gives you, I might be reading into it, but it kind of gives the impression that, yeah, even the anonymous people in your life or in the world have a part to play and it's a vital part. And, uh, it it really was just a, 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 wonderful experience i i absolutely adored it and that is a film i i will also say this um so jen doesn't think in terms of movie trivia the way i do and okay. in fact i don't think you do either um okay so after we saw it like we were both you know we we're both in a great mood and i said hey did you know that movie wasn't even nominated for director and she's like what and she got <laughs> so mad and you know and i was i got mad too like that is a director's film well, what did get now who got nominated that year uh let's see well mel gibson won and then I'm sure Ang Lee was nominated for Sense and Sensibility. Okay. I think Chris Noonan was nominated for Babe. Was it okay. Chris Noonan is his name? Um, the first one? I, yeah. I don't remember who directed the first one. And so, uh, and then, I don't remember the others. It might be the guy who did Il Postino, but I'm not sure about cool. that. Um, that should, that, that's the slot. Okay. That's the one that should. Well, and it's just, and that's fine, but it's, Maybe maybe the other five maybe they're all really powerful, but honestly, that yeah, Chris Noonan, Chris Noonan, okay. Um, but I don't even know if he was the one that got the nomination. Uh, so I'm sure. Honestly, I, I I'm not sure how 
Apollo 13 didn't, didn't get Best Picture. It only it won two Oscars, uh, and that is a film that is a, an achievement on every level. It is there's wonderful use of sound, visual effects, editing. I mean, it's all there. It is a it is a the complete package. And honestly, I mean, it's the best film Ron Howard has ever made. I'm I'm pretty positive about that. Um, a director that I don't usually like, but he or I don't dislike him, but I don't love him. I'm but he really just did what he had to do and got that film fully realized. And uh, it is a, a bummer that. Uh, and then, so I will say this. So then the conversation moved on and Jen said, has he ever won or nominated or got nominated? I said, yeah, he won for a beautiful mind. She goes, "Ugh." she's like, <laughs> I wouldn't have given it to him for that. She said, who was nominated that year? And I said, well, knowing she's a big fan of Gosford park. I said, well, Robert Altman was nominated for Gosford park. She's like, what? And she just like kept getting outraged <laughs> because that's the way the Oscars work. So anyway, uh, yeah. So Apollo 13 is what I saw and I absolutely, uh, adored it. It felt like I was seeing it for the first time. Honestly, here's who was nominated. Okay. That year. All right. Mel Gibson won yeah. for Braveheart. Chris Noonan was indeed nominated for Babe. Okay. Tim Robbins was nominated for Dead Man Walking. Uh, okay. Not as good as Apollo 13, but a good movie. Right. Mike Figgis was nominated for Leaving Las Vegas. Okay. And yes, Michael Radford, Radford was nominated for Il Postino. Okay. Hmm. I mean, it's I, I, an argument could be made for Tim Robbins, and I think maybe an argument could be made for Mike Figgis. Um... I think Il Postine is a perfectly fine, pleasant film. I don't think of it as uh, groundbreaking or anything like that. And and I don't like the idea of, you know, as we say so often, you know, best blank. It could be editing. Right. It could be whatever. It, that doesn't necessarily mean most. Right. You know, sometimes dialing in your tone is, is a strong directorial choice. But I do think that there's something to be said for achievement. And I think the achievement of Apollo 13... 22 years after it was made and I don't see any seams in those special effects and it still has this emotional punch. Uh, it's a film that could have been made last year, honestly, and I think it would have felt very similar. Here's my story of Apollo 13. I once okay. watched it. Uh, I was babysitting the neighbor's kid. I was in high school. We watched it together and the kid laughed at me for crying at the end. <laughs> no wonder you turned out like this. What, because a little kid laughed at me? Yeah, just, you know, I hear these stories about you when you're younger, you know, you get in a fight with somebody over uh, action versus comedy. Uh-huh. You have, a, you have a, rea- a genuine emotional reaction. People laugh at you. Like, I can definitely <laughs> see how this is starting to all make sense to me, David. Okay. Uh, that's interesting. All right. I watched a movie. Well, this started, I, did, I didn't know this when I watched it, but if, uh, it was initially a TV uh, movie. Uh, or, or it was part of the TV show, The Wonderful World of Disney. It, it mm-hmm. was two part of the, you know, it aired in two parts, but was put together and released as a movie. It's from 1962, I think. It's called Sammy the Way Out Seal. <laughs> um, so here's here's uh, okay. I talked about like trying to fill in blanks. Another thing that I like to do for fun sometimes is see like what's playing at the repertory theaters sure. that sounds good, but that I can't make it to because yeah. this was like. Um, I think this was like at the same time as playtime at Colcoa yeah. uh, at, at the new Beverly. They did like a, a matinee for kids. So it was like, that was my choice, either playtime or Sammy, the way out seal. Obviously I went to see playtime, sure. but, uh, Sammy, the way out seals on Amazon. So I was like, 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna, wa- I'm gonna yeah. watch this, uh, and it's just a. You can't, you can't have it all, David. Uh, yeah, exactly. In this day and age, yeah, <laughs> we can. Everything's at our fingertips, um, except democracy. Uh, oh boy! <laughs> like I said, I blame that kid who laughed at you for what just happened. Uh, Max. Max. Um, oh, it's unfortunate. Anyway, I like that name. Um, so yeah, see me the way out. So it was just about. Uh, <laughs> the, I can't believe we're talking about this. <laughs> family spends the summer at the beach. The two kids, the two boys, befriend a seal. Mm-hmm. This is what's right, a seal's name? Sammy. Got it. Uh, you know why they name him Sammy? Why is that? He likes to eat salmon. Um, and this is at the very beginning of the movie. It's like we got to go back to our uh, picturesque early 1960s. Walt Disney style suburb where everything's perfect and happy and everyone has, uh, like, uh, apparently has way, uh, has huge houses. Um, uh, but it's somehow still small town and quaint at the same time. There's a weird dream they were selling. Yeah. Of, like everyone could be affluent, but everything still gets to be, uh, yeah. uh, unassuming somehow. Um, uh, anyway, a lot of a lot of, a lot of so, broken hearts uh, <laughs> pursuing that dream. So the the kids uh, sneak the seal into the back of the the trailer on the way back, and yeah. they're it's living in the bathtub or the living in a like pool in the in the in the shed. And of course, do the, the parents se- know about uh, this? No. This okay, is, they're keeping it secret. <laughs> All right. Then last weekend before school starts. <laughs> The neighbors have a big shindig, adults only, yeah. big shindig, uh, luau themed in their in their ginormous backyard. Well, wouldn't you know it? Sammy gets loose, and he causes some trouble. Yeah, and it ends up causing trouble for not just the kids, but for everyone in the town. Now is like at each other's throats because Sammy was like wow. sneaking around pushing people in the pool, and then someone turns around and is like, "What'd you push me in the pool like, for?" To the guy, it's like needful things. <laughs> yeah, Sammy is like Max went sit out and needful things. Um, but it's like he pushed somebody in the pool, and then Sammy runs into the bushes. The guy gets out of the pool. He sees somebody else. He's like, "You pushed me in the pool. Now we're in a fight." And so the second half of the movie is is just the town in chaos, and then it ends with Sammy and every dog in the town running through the grocery store and causing a mess. Uh, it's a it was a delight. I'm so glad I watched it. Uh, Robert Colt plays the dad. That's about right. Um, anyway, wow. Moving on to a movie that uh, comes out tomorrow. Hey, uh, actually, before you do that, can I uh, put something out there to the listener? There's uh, something that has been in my head. This seems like a huge tonal shift from Sammy the Way Out Seal. It isn't at all. Because your tone here. My tone is I'm going to blow my brains out (laughs) if I don't think of this. I've spent, I, I was up, I was laying in bed not sleeping because I was trying to figure this out okay. and maybe you can help me, but maybe. I'm finding it difficult to Google it. Okay. Uh, cause I can't find just the right words. Yeah. So somewhere out there uh, in a movie or a TV show or maybe a stand up act, I can't quite tell to be honest with you. Somebody is taught somebody like kind of a, uh, the, the image in my mind is like a sad sack older man okay who is upset because and somebody is keeping him down it's almost it's almost like a a mr wilson dennis the menace type okay i think okay i don't actually know but that's the type of sad sack we're talking about and he is talking to the person that is somehow oppressing him and he's saying you're like woody woodpecker 
And then he says, that poor walrus, all he wanted to do was have a picnic, and Woody Woodpecker just ruined it, ruins everything for that him. That does not uh, sound familiar to me. It is so specific in my brain, and I cannot figure out where I have heard it. All right, listeners. And it is killing me. Listeners, there's hopefully enough of you in this world yeah. that you have maybe seen this thing. It stands to reason that we've all seen this thing, that not all of us, but that you've seen the same thing. Some of you have seen the same thing I have. Please, for the love of God, help me. Put it in the comments. Yes. Please do. Uh, so, uh, yeah, if you just email Tyler, no, put it in the comments so everyone uh, will have this this indeed thing out of their heads. All right, uh, moving on. Movie that comes out this weekend. It is uh, the uh, fiction directorial debut of Eleanor Coppola, the eighty-year-old wife, right? Yes, of Francis Ford Coppola. We talked uh, about is, this course, uh, during the summer movie preview as a film oh, we were looking forward to. Yes, um, and uh, of course, Eleanor Coppola. It's not her directorial debut because she's made documentaries, including Hearts of Darkness. Mm-hmm. She was one of the co-directors of that, um, which is a terrific movie, marvelous. Um, but here she is making her sort of her fictional debut. Uh, the movie called Paris Can Wait. It is not getting good reviews. I'm going to be in the minority here. I'm going to tell you. I thought it was delightful. Okay. Um, I think some people are put off by the, uh, you know, especially in the, you know, uh, post Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, um, awareness of income, income inequality, the, the conspicuous, conspicuous consumption of the sure. city. Um, it is, it is just so, uh, unrelentingly extravagant. No. Um, uh, but to me, I found it, you know, there's something to be said for wish fulfillment, you know? Uh, it, but, um, basically the story is Diane Lane plays the wife of a movie producer. Um, and it's, it's always a shame when you describe your protagonist as the wife of blank or girlfriend of blank or whatever, but that right. is kind of how she's made to feel. That's part, right. part of the, the story is she's made to feel, uh, uh, Alec Baldwin plays the movie producer and he's, I think to the movie's credit, it's, he's not like David Schwimmer in six days, seven nights. It's always, for some reason, it's always the example I go to, but like the character that's been written specifically. So the woman, that the woman right. uh, has someone to leave that the audience, like clearly that guy's not right for you. Yeah. No, Alec Baldwin, like he's a nice guy, but his work keeps him very busy. They've been married for 20 years. It's a little bit dull maybe. Yeah. Um, and, uh, they're at the Cannes Film Festival. The festival's over. They they have to go to Budapest for his work, and then they're going to, going to go to Paris uh, for a vacation. Mm-hmm. But Diane Lane, you see, she has an earache. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, and the private jet pilot. See, this is where the, <laughs> it starts. The private jet pilot says, "So you know, you know, when the pressure kicks in, your ears are going to hurt." Uh, incredibly like yeah. it's going to be very this is a, a very painful flight for you uh and then uh so alec baldwin's french colleague his movie producing partner is like well i'm driving to paris why don't you go do the budapest thing your wife and i just take a trip up to paris you know we'll be there by dinner tonight or whatever yeah. um and of course it ends up taking them days to drive from Cannes to paris which i looked right. up as like a nine hour drive um because they stop and they see uh, all the sites that be, you know, and they stop at uh, restaurants and wineries and right. they eat huge. They stay in like great hotels. They eat yeah. these enormous multi-course meals. They have picnics with, uh, you know, fine aged cheese and, and wine. They go to the Lumiere brothers museum. It's just like <laughs> two days of driving through Paris. It's like, they're driving through France on the way to Paris and stopping and doing everything that I would want 
to do if I sure. had like the the time and the leisure and the money because they're constantly just dropping. Clearly, they're dropping yeah. like hundreds of dollars on each on each meal. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and it's a delight. And of course, it has the you know the uh, is is Jacques played by uh, Onar uh, Onar Viard? I think is his name. <laughs> um, is he trying to? seduce her is he just a charming frenchman and he loves his country and he wants to show uh you know and also is she in a position where she is open to being seduced or not um and so it uh it you know it it toys with that but i kind of feel like it's my take on it um is that it's almost like I said wish fulfillment earlier. That's exactly what the movie feels like. Yeah, like, I wish I could go to the Lumiere Brothers Museum. <laughs> but, like, I, I almost wouldn't be... I wouldn't have been su- that surprised if the movie ended with her, like, waking up on the plane to Budapest and this thing, with all, the whole thing mm. was a dream. It kind, it kind of has that yeah. feel to it. Waking up to a screeching earache. <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, my gosh, we've reached our, our altitude. Yeah. Um, but uh, I thought it was a delight. It is definitely a trifle. Um uh, and I'm using that term specifically, but, um, I understand a lot of people are turned off by it, but I, uh, I'd watch it again. I wouldn't mind spending, uh, another hour and a half in this world. You know, it's very interesting that you bring this up because, so this week's more than one lesson is me just answering, uh, listener questions that, uh, they are entitled to as a function of my Kickstarter campaign. And somebody asked, uh, wait, I get to ask a question, don't I? Or no, I didn't give enough. Uh, what, what were you at 20 bucks? Yeah. No, I'm sorry. Oh, damn. I sorry. Get a thank I will, you. You get a thank you. Yes. And you get a book, which I have given you. Yes. So, um, and you know what? Why don't you take a look at that acknowledgement section? Oh. There's a little something for you in there. <laughs> no. just, Go on. Just a photo of me giving you the finger. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, so this uh, this listener put a, a question out there that I thought was interesting, and he was saying, you know, do you find more film critics these days leaning, not merely leaning uh, political, but but uh, but. Um, I'll go with leading. It rhymes with leaning, uh, sort of. Um, leading with their politics first. And so he was asking, you know, and, and maybe even a little bit artificially, uh, kind of making themselves go with this instead of reviewing the movie that is. And I said, like, well, first off, what rule, what room do I have to judge from more than one lesson mm-hmm. where I interpret everything right. through this lens of faith? Like that would be rather hypocritical of me. But it's interesting that you bring up, bring this up and that. So are a number of critics because it's not getting good reviews. Uh, I believe it got like a D in the in the AB club. Yeah. Um, and that seems to be pretty par for the course. Uh is it the conspicuous consumption that they're bringing up or no, is it I, other I, I think it's the thinness of the movie, which okay. I can't, okay. I, I, I can't say that that's a, you know, that that's wrong, but that's right. not necessarily a bad thing. The movie can be yeah. uh, fluffy. There's, yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. I saw the meddler and I loved it. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. So I wasn't sure if that was, if that but was I, something I mean, they but, were singling out. I mean, your listener didn't ask this question of me, but, um, I can say as a, film critic uh it's hard not to in these in this yeah in these in this climate yeah it, it is very difficult not to and i've gotten some flack on in the comment section uh for some of my uh, i think my review of um 
I don't feel at home in this at this in this world anymore. Boy, I, I made it very much about Donald Trump in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I got a couple of commenters were like, "This isn't a review of the movie. You're just you just don't like Donald Trump." Yeah, uh, I uh, I approached uh, in my more than one lesson episode. I approached Hell or High Water as, uh, through the modern filter of like, well, now that we know that there are apparently a lot of frustrated white guys living in rural areas Mm -hmm. uh that does make this film seem different and the idea of them not being in in certain analyses um them not being you know catered to or being abandoned by the democrat party and uh people were not uh somebody was not thrilled with that analysis Uh, i mean that's that's, i mean i i I like that i mean i i'm more i'm more prone to take that movie as and you know, anti-banking sure. m- movie. Well, I, that's uh, one of the things I like about it is I think it's a lot of things. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, um, so it was something that, that struck me as interesting because if, if in fact there were a lot of, of critics whose primary, uh, primary issue with, uh, 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 Paris can wait was that like, Oh, look how much money these people have and look how much money they're blowing through. Don't they realize blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, yeah, well, that's, that's, but, that's, this is the movie. And yeah, but then I also, but I would also say I'm, even though I don't, I enjoyed the movie cause I enjoy some of that sort of escapism, uh, aspirational whisper from a type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's wrong. I don't think it's wrong for someone to review a movie based on that sort of thing. Reviews are, you know, they're generally subjective. Uh, they are. It's, I guess so it's, it's fine with me. I think there's, this is, uh, this is a conversation that I uh, had quite a bit at the international Christian film Festival. Is talking about, uh, director intent and, um, partially cause I wound up having a couple episodes about old vid angel as I uh-huh. suspected I would. Um, and this idea that, that, you know, our job as critics and I would say as viewers is to look at the film that is being presented to us and then try to figure out what the director might be trying to do. And it's tough because if we are, if we're condemning the characters, then although actually, sorry, I'm, I'm having a thought about this is 40, which I haven't seen, but you have. And I know a number of other people were had a problem with like the as you say, the conspicuous consumption there and the idea that these are the people apparently have money troubles. Uh, yeah, that's the issue. You now this is 40 is that it's so tone deaf. Yeah. Um, um and I think, I, I think Paris can wait knows how extravagant it is. Okay. Yeah. And that's, and I, and I feel like, uh, that's the story it's telling. And, and I don't think the director is trying to point out a certain tone deafness of these characters or a certain out of touchness of these out of touchitude of these characters. And so if somebody were to, to latch on to that, then I guess ultimately it's, well, I have a problem with these characters that the film doesn't. And maybe I think the film should, um, you know, yeah, that's, I, again, I think that's valid. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I, I, and, and I disagree, but I, I don't think that's a bad way of right. reviewing yeah. uh, a movie. In my talk, you'll be happy to know that I did cite our, uh, girl with the dragon tattoo episode, great. uh, as, as, as the idea that my two, great shame, Oh, pish posh. Um, <laughs> this, this idea that, uh, you did hang your head just now. That was really nice. Um, 
but this idea that uh, that two people who are similar in age went to the same school uh, and tend to approach film not from an not from the exact same perspective, but we agree more often than we disagree. I would say, which is uh-huh. something that people have a problem with right up until the moment we disagree, <laughs> um, and then they're like, oh, I don't like this at all. Never mind. Yeah. Never mind. Um, and so that we could come away from this film with two completely different interpretations, and that in the end, that might be actually. <laughs> In that disagreement, we might be a lot closer to what David Fincher actually meant than any sure. than any specific yeah. interpretation that we might have had. Yeah. But anyway, sorry, that was uh, that's that that's was uh, neither here nor there. But we got to get. I to have the not next. seen this film. So. We got to get to the next movie, which you got to see. Okay, it's on because it's on Netflix. Okay, uh, it's a Netflix documentary. I guess it's called Casting John Bonet. Oh yeah! Holy shit! I cannot <laughs> believe this movie. Like and I like I dry, like Netflix. Netflix, I have my understand, does a lot more advertising in Los Angeles than it does in other parts of the country. Maybe in New York, they do a lot. Really, but um, uh, I think Netflix does advertising more to prove to other studios that there are real studios. Sure. I think that's why there's a lot of advertising in Los Absolutely. Angeles. Um, uh, I, I think that's the idea. But I drive down and I see, like, you know, when you're driving past like a construction site that has the, you know. Uh, you know, wood mm-hmm. uh, up uh, in front of the fence. And so yep. you'll have a series of posters yep. and it's just a posters of a bunch of the different like girls who are auditioning to play John Bonet. And I'm like this, I can't believe they're, I can't believe that's how they're advertising this movie. I can't believe that they're advertising this movie. Yeah. And yet that's perfect. Yeah. But like, I feel like in a way Netflix, <laughs> I'm so glad they put this out. Like Netflix seems so mainstream to me. Yeah. And I feel like, having a documentary about a salacious true crime tabloid thing like casting Germany is going to, uh, you know, attract viewers who maybe like, you know, I watch a ton of movies. Mm -hmm. I was not prepared for what this movie is. Oh, I like that. And I think like, yeah, your average movie viewer who's watching it because of the subject matter is probably going to hate it to be honest. But I'm I, so glad people are going to see this movie. I interrupted your watching it because uh, yeah. I had to drop off uh, recording equipment. That's right. And uh, <laughs> you were in a state. Yeah. You were like, because you just weren't ready to talk to another human being, clearly. Yeah. Uh, and I was intrigued. So for those who don't know, the, the premise of the movie is that it's it's not a documentary about the the, the Jean-Marie Ramsey murder. Or maybe it is, in part. What it really is, it's this woman, um, Kitty Green, I think is the director's name, making... The premise is she's making a documentary with reenactments and she's casting. These are, you know, actors, but actors from Boulder, who live in Boulder, Colorado, who mm-hmm. work in community theater, do commercials and stuff like that. And so people who have a connection, um, at least geographically, and in some cases more so um, with this crime. And so their auditions and the interviews about their memory, memories of the, of the crime and their opinions of it are what make up the bulk of the movie. Yeah. But then these reenactments that are auditioning for actually do happen, but they're not, uh, they're, they're pretty brief. Um, and so the movie, um, I think what it ends up being about is I think, I think the movie is not at all sitting on the sidelines. I don't think it's a sympathetic movie. I think it's an angry and accusatory movie um, but I'm okay with that because I think the thing, the, the thing yeah. that it's saying is it, it's, it's making us look at, um, the way that we feel so 
comfortable once something becomes a story like this. Yeah. Um, we feel so comfortable speculating about the lives of people that we don't, that we don't know. We to this day, we don't know what happened to John Ramsey. Yeah. The outlandish salacious, um, and frankly disturbing theories that people almost with a spy smile casually, like, you know, toss off and the way they judge the father and the way that like some of them say like, Oh, I think it was definitely the mother. I think the father didn't have anything to do with it, but he decided to go along with it. Like you don't know any of it. Like, how can you just say like, um, and yet we all, you know, we all do it to some extent uh, or, or another. Um, I, I try not to do it too much and I will definitely try to do it less now that I've seen this movie. Um, but it has, um, uh, you know, it's, it's an audacious movie, but it's not scolding. Like the thing that I just described makes it sound like it's a preachy and scolding movie. It's not at all. It's mostly really funny, but it's funny with the taste of bile in its mouth. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's bleeding and funny. Um, and some of the laughs are not even jokes. They're just like, Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, I'll tell one, but cause there's the one part that made me, I'm not going to say what this is cause I want to spoil it with people, but I watched the movie alone and there was a part where I would like literally like put my hands on my forehead and was like, Oh my God. Like, I can't believe they included that. I'm not going to say what that one is. Um, uh, but the one I will say is that they're interviewing. So the, They'll generally do, especially at the beginning, uh, before it starts mixing it up. But at the beginning, you'll see a bunch of interviews of people for the mom and mm. then a bunch for the dad. And so they'll do it. They'll break it down by character. Um, that's basically how it, at the end it, it diffuses more, but it's basically like, basically like character. And so they're interviewing or auditioning people to play the, uh, sheriff, um, who like gave the press conferences was part of this, part of this story. Um, and, so there are different people talking about themselves and one guy says, Oh, I do this for a living. Um, but, uh, and then in the evenings and weekends, I have a gig where I, um, I'm trying to, remember, he called it like a sex educator, but he is essentially like an S and M coach. Oh, wow. Right. Okay. And so like, that's how we're introduced. And then like the movie goes on a little bit. Uh, or this sec- section goes on. We're seeing yeah. other people auditioning. Other people talk about their memories of the sheriff and how he's composed and what he must have felt when he saw the body and all this stuff. And then it comes back to this guy and he's like, I generally like a lot of nipple torture, breast torture, you know, whips. <laughs> like, that, that kind of stuff happens. Throughout I don't the know movie. if I would be able to watch this <laughs> movie. Um, uh, yeah. And I, I mean, I feel like that's a big laugh, but I also kind of feel like, um, it's, uh, maybe, maybe she's trying to say this is no less ridiculous yeah. uh, in a way, or maybe, you know, it's, it's more real. Uh, he actually has experience with, you know, nipple torture. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, casting Gemini, uh, and then I talked, uh, this guy's is going to go to Dan's head cause he's going to come up two episodes in a row. But I talked to our friend Dan Gavazna about the movie who also, mm. also saw it. And cause I, now when I saw you, I still had half an hour of the movie left. Right. It has an ending that I was not sure that when the movie ended, I was like, I'm not sure that I understand how that fits in with the movie that I was watching. But I think, um, and I don't want to say what it is. So I'm not even sure why I brought it up, but, um, I think I like the movie more now after talking to Dan because he had a, a pretty clear cut sort of interpretation of, uh, of, of, of the ending and how the movie wants us to 
think about JonBenet Ramsey herself. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, def- definitely check it out. Even if you don't like it, like you don't want to not have seen this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Episode idea. Uh, I feel like it's been around long enough that I would like, I wouldn't mind devoting an episode to Netflix and what it is. Cause like you just said, there's a main, it, it seems very mainstream and I'm sure, and, and it does. But then I think of certain movies like this and I think of series like making a murder, which admittedly like caught, you know, really yeah. caught on in a very mainstream way, even if what it's doing is not necessarily mainstream. And so, uh, whether it be the TV shows or the original movies, I'd be interested in okay. dissecting Netflix. All right, um, moving on. I still got a couple more before I get to t- uh, turn it back over to you. Um, I watched another documentary from a few years ago um, that I've been meaning to get to called Shake the Dust. Um, and basically, uh, it's a movie that's about breakdancing in third world countries. So it's basically like, uh, it's uh, Vietnam. No, no, it's not Vietnam. It's Cambodia, uh, Yemen, um, Colombia where you've been and um what was the other one it's a northern african country not too far from yemen i guess uh but now i can't remember where it was um it might have been in egypt actually i can't remember now uh, i'll, I'll bet uh, colombia would object to being referred to as a third world country they uh our tour guide really went out of his way to talk about yeah. everything that colombia had to offer well i then i you know what i should i should um advise revise what i'm saying it's it this the movie takes place specifically in the most poverty stricken parts of got it and and urban poverty stricken parts basically i think the premise of the movie is that the bronx in the 1970s was not that dissimilar from the situation that oh, okay. these kids are in now and um breakdancing for whatever reason seems to have found um uh, a, a foothold in these uh, you know, uh, among these struggling, you know, uh, basically poor urban youth. Um, and I, I like the movie because, well, it has a, uh, fantastic soundtrack, which is, uh, there's music by Nas, but also Nas is like the music producer. So he picked, I guess, all the songs that it's mm-hmm. fucking great, uh, music. And I like that the movie doesn't really try to like pinpoint why that is. Most of the movie is us just like, watching people break dance mm. and then you see some people talk like there's a bunch of individual stories and you see, you know, um, uh, um, uh, the Columbia section I liked actually was interesting because unlike the other three, there's a, uh, it seems to be a fairly healthy contingent of B girls in, 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 in Bogota of, yeah. of, you know, uh, teenage girls and younger, um, who, who break dance, uh, uh and so it has all these, like, I guess, a bunch of different human interest stories about breakdancing, but most of the movie is just watching people breakdance, and it's fucking yeah. great, and the music's great. Uh, did I say what it was called? It's called Shake the Dust. Yeah. Okay. Incidentally, uh, Colombia is no longer uh, the, the cocaine capital of the world. They said that several times on the tour. They really wanted to hammer that home. So. Did you... Did you raise your hand and say, uh, I'm already here. <laughs> like yeah. I already you made, paid for the plane. Yeah. You made your sale. <laughs> yeah. That's like that. Uh, I'm sure I've said this on the show before. Um, the, the DVD of, uh, left behind, you know, that, uh, not the Nicholas Cage one, the old, the, the old, uh, Kirk Cameron left behind. Oh, I think you're going to say the same thing as the beautiful mind DVD. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, now this one, uh, 
it's it's in the opening credits. It's oh. not on the disc itself. Yeah. Uh, when so it says uh, even, even even worse. Even worse. Where it says based on the best selling novel by so and so, and I thought. You don't have to say that. A, if I'm watching this at all, I'm familiar with the novels. But also, my eyeballs are on your movie. Yeah. You don't. You don't need to keep selling. But yeah, the beautiful mind it has like quotes on the disc itself, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Four stars. It's like yeah. I, I opened the. Di- I opened <laughs> yeah, the I box. Got this far. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, and then. Uh, Last one before I turn it back over to you and get a, get a drink of water. Mm. Um, I, I saw a movie called Maudie, M-A-U-D-I-E, which uh, we also talked about on our, on our summer right. preview. Uh, I said I was excited about it because of the cast, Sally Hawkins and Ethan Hawke. Hawk oh and boy. Hawkins oh together boy. last. You said you're not a big Ethan Hawke fan. I said, how dare you? It's a whole thing. Um, <laughs> but you know what? I like Sally Hawkins so much that, that prob- it probably evens out. So this is uh, another... You know, I don't know why I tend to get. No, again, I do know why because some of them, are, so, many, so many of them are bad. But I tend to be skeptical of things that are based on a true story. I tend mm-hmm. to be skeptical of biopics, um, and that's what this is. Uh, Maud um, Maud Lewis uh, was a, I guess you'd call her an outsider artist in in Nova Scotia. She basically was a a, a woman who had arthritis from early age. Didn't you know? Wasn't couldn't walk very well, but she liked to paint cute pictures. She sold them on the side of the road in her one, the one room, um, uh, home with no indoor plumbing that she shared with her fisherman husband. Uh, and these things sort of caught on to the point where even then vice president Nixon ordered one via mail because it was good. They were getting so much coverage. Uh, people were like, you know, lining up. Um, and so it's the, you know, it's a biopic of an outsider artist, but again, like with a bag of marbles, it has a different way in, in that this is, yes, it's about Maud Lewis and it's true to that, but really this is the story of a relationship between her and her husband as, um, uh, he's introduced, he played by Ethan Hawke, introduced as not a nice guy. He doesn't like people. He's maybe there's, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say he's mentally handicapped, but he's, maybe a little has a little diminished intellect. He's not Mm -hmm. uh, a particularly bright guy. um, And he tends to be a little mean and, and curt. um, And she uh, has been treated like shit by her family. And maybe he's kind of used to that kind of treatment. And so it seems like an unhealthy relationship at first, but um, the movie is basically, I think, I, I think it's an illustration of the way that just, that having somebody changes you mm-hmm. and that you can be, you can be a better, you can be a better person just for, just for having somebody, I guess. Mm. Um, and it's a really weirdly touching, um, God, I don't know whether to say this. I feel like it's kind of a spoiler, so I'm not going to say it. Maybe okay. I'll tell you off, uh, off, off mic if you want to know. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a romance, I guess but it's not a conventional romance, but you, it is better built than most conventional romances. By the end of it, you really do understand how these people feel about one another. Hmm. All right. All right. Um, and then, yeah, uh, back to you. Okay. Back to me. How exciting. Uh, so I watched, uh, a film on Hulu called Batman and bill. It's a documentary. 
by Don Argot and Sheena M. Joyce, who made uh, The Art of the Steel. They made Rock School um, and others. But I've heard of them. Uh, Yeah, and so Batman and Bill, as one might be able to assume, is uh, about Bill Finger. Um, the co-create the for a long time uncredited co-creator of Batman and a number of the villains uh, the of his uh, rogues gallery and such, and it is about uh, a certain author whose name escapes me unfortunately who worked very hard to uh, get Bill Finger credit even though Finger died of a fairly anonymous death. Uh, it was believed for a long time that he was like in a potter's field. And, um, so meanwhile, Bob Kane was living the good life. And, and so there's, there's some interesting things there. And there's a, there's an interesting element in that there, there's, there's an investigation element because this author any number of people felt very passionately about Bill Finger getting credit, even, you know, even posthumously. Um, but this author ultimately realized that in order to sue DC or Warner brothers, mm-hmm. um, you need a relative, you need an heir. And it took him a long time to realize that, uh, there was like a niece somewhere. Uh, and then he called her and she said, like it's almost like she was waiting for this call and and like she didn't know what she didn't know how to go about doing any of this mm-hmm. and then someone just this just lands in her lap and so uh so ultimately through an, uh, a number of legal proceedings um DC and Warner Brothers to their credit they didn't fight really hard they ultimately said we are very happy to announce uh alongside the the relatives of Bill Finger that from now on Mm-hmm. anything Batman related will have his name on it. And so you see the author, uh, in the, in a screening of Batman V Superman, you know, God help us. I'm sure Bill <laughs> Finger would be like, yeah, can you actually take that <laughs> off? Um, but, uh, it says, you know, created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. And, and there's, it's a weird thing. It seems so small, um, in the, in the long, in the long run in the grand scheme of things, uh, getting credit for this man that cannot benefit at all, um, seems not that important, but it's, it really strikes a blow, I think for just artistry in general. And, and I know that artistry is not necessarily about getting credit, but that's the thing is if we look at art as an expression, of somebody's the way somebody sees the world, then we need to know exactly whose expression that is. And for a long time, everybody thought it was Bob Kane and only mm-hmm. Bob Kane. And as he got older, even he seemed to, he seemed a little bit trapped by the narrative that he helped create. Uh, and so there are, there are tapes uncovered where he talks about just how big a contribution Bill Finger made, but he never really came out and said he, he did a huge, you know, mm-hmm. he was easily a co-creator. Um, he couldn't, he, clearly felt like he couldn't say that. And so the, the documentary is very anti Bob Kane in a lot of ways, but it goes out of its way to make him sympathetic where they could. Mm. Um, and so it's, I think it probably, it winds up being a pretty facile documentary. It's interesting and I'm invested, but honestly, I feel like it would have been more interesting and more engaging if they had treated it, if they'd really played up the investigative element. Um, of this author, like really digging into things. But honestly, I think a lot of it, 
you know, they're not really following him around. So a lot of it is in retrospect, uh, which can kind of undercut things. So, you know, I find myself wondering, I spend so much time thinking, watching a narrative film and thinking I'd rather, I'd rather this be a documentary. Uh, this is a rare instance where I actually think you could turn this into a narrative film and it would be very interesting. Um, because there'd be an immediacy to it that, uh, that a retrospective documentary loses. So, uh, but it's an interesting, it's, it's interesting. And, and what's odd is that, uh, they reference a WonderCon panel where somebody asks the panel about, and it was about Batman and somebody asked the panel about Bill Finger. Uh-huh. I was there. Yeah. I was at that. Panel. I think I remember you talking and, about that. Uh, yeah. And so it was, and, and just like, there's like some, some collar stretching at the, on that panel and there was some awkwardness. And, and so it's kind of neat to, uh, have been, I, I don't think I realized that that panel was as pivotal as it was. Um, so, uh, it seemed like an interesting thing for me, but that was it. So, uh, so it's on Hulu. I I recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, home stretch here, except, uh, we're getting into stuff that you've seen a couple of years. Um, so I watched James Gunn's 2014 film guardians of the galaxy. Okay. I'd never seen it before. I was preparing to see guardians of the galaxy volume two. Um, and, uh, I, I felt, uh, uh, you know, uh, I felt generally how I think you felt about it is I do think, I do think there's a lot of, maybe even more than you're giving credit for. There is James Gunn in the movie, but my problem to the sense that I have a problem with it and I don't dislike the movie. Right. I like it just yeah. fine. But, but if you're not over the moon about it, uh, it kind of yeah. feels like you dislike it. It just feels like the James Gunn stuff only gets in around the edges. You've got yeah. character stuff. You've got some comedy, although even that like seeing it and seeing it when I did, I remember when guardians of the galaxy came out, it was like, this is the funny Marvel movie. Yeah. But, um, we've since had Ant-Man and I would say Ant-Man's funnier than guardians of the galaxy. Um, any day, mostly because of Michael Pena, but also because of other people. And Um, they're all kind of funny. The, the Iron Man films are pretty funny too. Um, yeah, that's true. Um, but, um, I don't know. The first Guardians of the Galaxy did have uh, a line that made me laugh really hard, um, which is after Star-Lord makes his impassioned speech for everyone to join him, and mm-hmm. one by one they stand up and say they're joining him to only Rocket's left, and then Rocket stands up and he's like, all right, I'm standing. You happy? We're all standing. Bunch of jackasses standing in a circle. And apparently, I don't know if this is true. Again, IMDb like trivia pages. Yeah. Those could all be apocryphal. But we talked... Um, um, I think we talked on the summer movie preview about how uh, Bradley Cooper voices Rocket Raccoon, but mm-hmm. uh, Sean Gunn voices him on the set. Right. Bradley Cooper's not there, and uh, the trivia read said that 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 last bit, bunch of jackasses standing in the circle, was a Sean Gunn ad lib. Nice. Um, I totally buy it. Sean Gunn's great. Um, but so all of the, but all of this stuff happens around the edges. Whereas I think the heart of the movie is pretty boilerplate Marvel stuff. Yeah. You've got the infinity stone MacGuffin and you've got as much as I love Lee Pace. I'm a Lee Pace fan. I think this is a good role for his talents. It's a stock villain. Um, he might as well be the character from Thor, the dark world played by Christopher Eccleston. Like they're very similar types of characters. I didn't see just these, these intergalactic who gives a shit. But yeah. And then it all comes down to like all the, all of these do we have to save the world in this case, it's Xandar instead of earth. But other than that, it's just like every other Marvel movie, someone's going to try to destroy a world. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I liked it. Um, I, you know, probably watch it again someday. Uh, but, um, and the music is great. It's mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, yeah. I, I will give James Gunn 
that that it's um not only is it great music but it's like it's not always the music you expect do you know what i mean yeah I mean, there's like moon age daydream is in there which i can't fault him for that's a great yeah. song um but like the opening credits of like come and get your love song is like that's a yeah. great song but that's not like that's like not in the first tier of like you know 70s hits that people are gonna uh think of or it's actually not the first song because the first song is in the prologue is i'm not in love by 10 cc mm-hmm. which is a great song um but uh yeah it's so he didn't just say this will be fun to put a lot of movie music from the 70s yeah. um and early 80s and into this music he or into this movie he picked the right songs uh, and it does make it a lot of fun and if you want a bad example of of what you're talking about you watch suicide squad which clearly was recut in order to be to emulate guardians of the galaxy a little bit more and that's one where first off there's way too much music and it's the most obvious choice every time okay so um because i insist on going chronologically we're going to talk about one before we get to the next one which is uh, what you know you know what else is coming now but uh in between i watched uh screen factories um uh, Blu-ray of Bob Clark's Black Christmas. Oh, okay. have you ever seen this movie? I have not. It's fucking great. I've, like I've heard it was really good. Uh, yeah, I think I don't know what I was thinking. Like I guess I thought it was just like you know kind of schlocky because I know I remember the remake, which is which is now over a decade old, by the way. Um, the remake with uh, with Harriet the Spy, I think, was in it. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, pre Scott Pilgrim, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Um, Okay, so I'm looking this up just to make sure everyone knows. Bob Clark, director of Black Christmas, yeah, Porky's, yeah, A Christmas Carol, uh, sorry, A Christmas, a Christmas Story, Story, and yeah. Baby Geniuses, yeah, among others. Yeah, that's the Bob Bob Clark we're talking about. Um, oh, and the sequel, Baby Gen- uh, Super Babies, Baby Geniuses too. Yeah, I don't think worry. I knew that. Um, so anyway, uh, but Black Christmas 1974. So it's you know. When we talk, you know, we did a whole commentary on the slasher movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the slasher movie as a as a genre, where would you say it starts? Does it start with Psycho? Because that was where we started. I mean, people say that that's generally agreed upon, yes. But what I thought about watching this was 1974, is I feel like the template we think of when we think of slasher movies right. is Halloween. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, I, I feel mean, like there's the masked killer. And so like, well, I mean, Leatherface is a masked killer. So that's right? 74. But as far as, but you're talking about the template. Yes. Yeah. People and, associate and, Halloween. And so when you hear the premise of black Christmas, a bunch of sorority girls, you know, you know, they're snowed in. I actually don't think they're not snowed in. Apparently that's the premise of the remake. Um, uh, but it's, christmas time it's a sorority house you think you think you know how you know leslie vernon however you know would handle right, this like, right you know one at a time and it, so it was interesting to watch it and realize like oh that like you know the that that template wasn't quite in place yet and no. so it managed to surprise me like you know spoilers the virgin is the first one to get killed in oh, this okay. movie um and it also like it paces out the the murders differently than you're expecting like i feel like standard for these kind of movies is like you have something real bloody and violent happen up front. And then after that, it's a long, slow burn. And then it all kind of spills over at the end. That's kind of mm-hmm. roughly how these type of movies go. Would you agree? That that's, uh, let's see. I mean, there's definitely a big one at the beginning. And then 
I don't know. I mean, because I grew up watching a lot of Friday the 13th, uh-huh. I, it's basically like every 10 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe 15 minutes. Uh, it's just the ones I'm watching. Uh, yeah. But the, you yeah, probably this, watch ones with a bit more artistry to them. <laughs> but this is like, they are paced out uh, pretty well. And it, um, it also, to go back to the conversation we were talking about before about like bringing your uh, politics or whatever is mm. going on in the world to it um, as a movie um, about. It's it's um, again when you hear the premise sorority girls getting killed you think it's going to be exploitation no. but I actually think it's much more um, respectful and and feminist in a way than that um, than that that sounds like because it these are all you know the distinct characters you've got um, Olivia Hussey is the the lead and you've got uh, Margot Kidder as the uh, um, I'm not sure how else to describe her. She's the B of the group. Oh, got it. Um, and then you've got... Um, Always buzzing uh, around. I know what yeah. you're saying. You've got the Virgin, like I said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got um, Andrea Martin as the sort of uh, dowdy, sensible one. Yes, SCTV's Andrea Martin. <laughs> this is very strange. Um, but this is pre, you, uh, the pre-SCTV. Yeah. If you were to say, hey, Bob Clark and Andrea Martin work <laughs> together, no, yeah. it's not one of his weird comedies from the 80s. No. Um, although again, to talk about the 2006 remake, Andrea Martin is the only person who's in the first one who was also in the second one. She plays the house mother in the second one. That's neat. Um, anyway, um, what was I going to say? Uh, so the, yeah, they're all very distinctly drawn characters. There's, um, the idea of what it, you know, uh, the, added vulnerability of just being a woman is part of it. Mm-hmm. And also this being 1974, two years after Roe v. Wade, there is an abortion plot line where one of the characters, um, is, is pregnant and tells her the, the, you know, the guy who impregnated her that she's planning on having an abortion and, uh, he flips out. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it's, you know, it, it, it works as a sort of look at what abor- where abortion, you know, two two years after Roe v. Wade, but what these conversations were like and how little they've changed in some ways. But also on a plot, from a plot sense, it's uh, an attempt to set him up as a suspect. Right, right. Although you'd have to, you'd have to not have seen a movie before to actually think that he like herrings don't come any redder than this yeah. guy. But um, <laughs> uh, it is it, it's a very like interesting movie and it is super creepy. Like the. Um, uh, so the, there is the, an element of sort of a whodunit then this idea of wh- which of these suspects could be the person. Cause that's something um, that went away uh, with the mass ex- killers to some extent. Not really. Okay. It's somewhere. Yeah. It's somewhere in between the, the scream type whodunit and the Mike Myers type. Just, just killer. It's somewhere in, in, in between. Um, but it's also uh, cause I looked into this when I hear about, the call is coming from inside the house. Sure. I always think that's when a stranger calls. Yeah. But no, this is five years earlier. And this is, and so I've, uh, I've looked it up. Apparently it didn't even start with, it was like, uh, the, it, it started in like TV horror anthologies were the first oh, ones sure. to do that. But I guess the first like theatrical film to have the, the calls are coming from inside the house thing, which I guess I just spoiled the movie, but whatever. Um, uh, spoiled part. I didn't spoil anything important. You actually know pretty early on the characters don't know, but you yeah. know, pretty early on the killer is in the house. Um, like, uh, like Gary Busey in that, uh, hider in the house. <laughs> you ever heard about that movie? 
No. Uh, okay. Uh, I've never seen it. Anyway, so Black Christmas is good. Hiding in the House is a movie where Gary Busey is like, oh, I think he gets out of prison and he goes back to the house. Like, I think maybe he killed his family. I could be... I could be wrong with that part, but he gets out of prison, breaks out of prison, maybe goes back to the house where he lived. A new family is there and he essentially like moves into the attic and like drills holes. And it's just like spying on this family Oh, and it's called hider in the house. <laughs> I've never seen it, but I know. So the, he is the hider. Yeah. He's the hider. Uh, he's not the house. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the next movie, which you know what it is. It's James Gunn's guardians of the galaxy volume two. This movie is so self-evidently better than its predecessor that every time I read a review that says it's good, but it's not as good as the first one, I'm like, how have we grown up in the same world watching movies? Like, how do you how do you take that away? How do you look at these two movies and not see that the second one is so much better because it actually has a real story? The 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 villain and the threat comes out of the story comes out of the characters and comes out of the themes and it all works together yeah. it's also even more of an ensemble piece i think um uh yeah, most of the characters i mean baby groot is just uh is adorable but yeah. it's not really i don't think you'd call him a character in the movie he's more he plays more of an active role than i thought but that doesn't mean he's a full-on character. He's yeah. more of a device. Uh, yeah, but he's a he's a delightful one. Yes, um, and uh, yeah, you even get like uh, I'm not sh- I'm not sure if there was any was there any like dark comedy in the first one because no spoilers people haven't seen Oops, Guardians sorry. of the Galaxy Volume Two. Um, but there is a joke involving a severed toe, which I thought was very funny and yes. very James Gunn. Yes. <laughs> um, Hmm, uh, that's a good point. Uh, is there dark comedy in the first one? I'm sure people would say that there's that there is, but there's the way you and I would define dark comedy. I think is different. Some yeah. people would say like it's like well, it's a little bit offbeat. It's a little a little bit right, off kilter. Like, it's like that's not yeah, what I we're mean, talking edgy. about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is not a term that I can use seriously. Yeah. I can't use that with a straight face. Edgy. Um, anyway. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a it's it's a it's a bigger film and a better film. Uh, it feels more uh, like its own thing. It also now it it has a couple of scenes that are clearly like setting up the next Guardians movie. Yeah, but it I'll take that. It doesn't have it pretty much doesn't have any connection to any other Marvel franchise. I mean, there's probably like a bunch of you know, Easter eggs that went over my head, but it doesn't like have a scene where it's like, Oh, like the first one had like the Thanos stuff where it's like, I mean, really the first one, the whole plot, the fact that it's an infinity stone and all that is all about tying it into the larger story. This is like, it's a guardians movie. And yeah, it does have two or three scenes that are clearly that, you know, if you didn't know there was a third one coming, you'd be like, what was with that? (laughs) Like, why is that big name actor in two and a half scenes and not doesn't really do anything. It's like, clearly this is going to be a part of the next movie. Yes. Um, uh, but that, that, that stuff doesn't bother me that much, especially since I liked him. Uh, I, can, I, I don't know if we're allowed to say who we're talking about. Uh, I mean, at this point it's been out a couple weeks. Okay. Um, so Sylvester Stallone is, so, yeah. About. And, yeah. and I think people knew he was in the movie, but I don't know if people, they knew that he was not an important character in the movie. Yeah. And I think that's, that is uh, an issue that I have is, 
I think everybody watches and is like, why is he in the movie? It's not really that effective. Well, I guess it's, it'll pay off in the next one. Part of me is like, yeah, but that means we're spending time with stuff in this movie that is not effective. Yeah, I know. I, and I don't because I don't I haven't maybe seen enough of the Marvel movies to automatically think that way. Like after the first scene, I was like, OK, we're going to see this paid off in this movie. And it didn't. I mean, we do get weirdly Kurt Russell, I guess, gives some explanation we learned from Kurt Russell why Steve Sylvester Stallone is mad at Michael Rooker. Yes. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, that's something, but that's not really a resolution. Right. If they had introduced Stallone's character in the first film, uh-huh. then paid off, and which I won't spoil, but like pay off in the finale, like when he shows up again, it feels a bit more emotionally resonant. But as it is, like they, they, they introduce him. He's only in one more scene. And then he shows up again at the end and it just yeah. feels, everything feels rushed in what should I, feel more emotional. But I will say this, it does from a utilitarian standpoint, it does a good job of fleshing out the ravager subculture. Yes. I think. Yes, they do. Um, something that we didn't get as much. We didn't yeah. learn that they're like motorcycle gangs, yeah. <laughs> you know? And I do enjoy um, the taser face character. I feel like that's a, that feels like James Gunn as well. Um, okay. Yeah. But just mixed with the, the Marvel sensibility, he's just this ridiculous over the top biker type character uh-huh. who goes by the name of taser face. And when someone first hears that, like, Whoa, what, uh, what is that? <laughs> and then he goes, it's metaphorical. <laughs> and it's uh, it's a delightful performance. I like it a uh, lot. Yeah. Okay. Um, I feel like there's something else I was going gonna to say, but I don't remember what it was. Um, well, let me, ask, yeah, I liked it. Let me ask you this. So I was talking with a friend of the show, Jason Eakin about the film. And so you mentioned that it's bigger and that, and I would agree it is bigger. And so does, and he agrees as well, but he and I both came away feeling the same thing that it's bigger and yet somehow feels more intimate. Um, oh, do you I'm, know what I mean? Well, yeah, because the, the characters, uh, I guess relationships to one another are more, at the forefront, yeah. which is not, I, I don't want to sound like I'm talking shit about the first one because right. it is, a, I do like the, I did like the first one and I do like in the first one, the characters have this arc where everyone starts out with their own personal interests and then over time comes, they, they come to find themselves as a team without ever making a decision to be a team. Yeah. In fact, it's the bad guy who gives them their name, which I find yeah. uh, interesting. So the first one does have good arcs in that sense, but, um, uh, I guess the, okay. I don't know if this is tr- true, but I'm going to say it cause I think it sounds nice. The first movie has personal arcs. The second movie has interpersonal arcs. Sure. Um, and so I guess it, it would feel more intimate because it's more about the characters interaction, interacting with one another. Well, and and the first film, it has this idea of a makeshift family in absence of an actual family. The second one introduces actual family on a couple of different mm-hmm. fronts yeah. and says, okay, now what, now what role does your makeshift family play? Um, and in some cases they accept real family in other cases they don't. Um, and, uh, there's, there's, uh, it really goes deeper. And I think that's what I, that's definitely what I mean when I think more intimate is that, uh, is that even the villain 
is more emotionally connected to the characters. Like everything seems like they're like they're deepening their connections with one another, even in the midst of this, this huge spectacle. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the first one felt a little bit, uh, just a bit shallower. And, uh, and yeah, and I don't mean to, I also don't mean to speak ill of the, the first one. Um, but I do definitely think that, uh, that Marvel gave uh, James Gunn more of a free hand with this one, because I think if they had, if he'd had ultimate freedom uh, with that first one, I think, for example, we would have seen a lot more of the collector with that crazy ass performance by Benicio del Toro that I would have liked to spend a lot more time with. Um, but he's just kind of, he's just kind of there because it's just a, it's a touch of weirdness. Whereas this film has a lot of it. Um, and to speak to, uh, the music, there is a scene where Michael Rooker and and Rocket and Groot are escaping uh-huh. and leaving a mountain of bodies in their wake, which I that in itself is pretty amazing. Yeah. But the musical choice there is one it's it's that song Come a Little Bit Closer, which is not a classic rock song. You know, that song is what, ten years earlier, maybe even more? Uh-huh. You know, um, but what a wonder, but it's, it's a beautiful song, yeah. uh, for that. And, and so, so off kilter for that, uh, for that sequence. And I do love that whole sequence. It's, yeah, that's really good. It's delightful. And that's, I was telling you off mic. That's why I'm glad that I don't watch trailers beforehand because I wouldn't, yeah. the, yeah, the visual flair of that sequence would have been spoiled for me. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, last movie. I'm not going to say too much about it. Um, I still haven't written my review, which I'd need to post like tonight or maybe I'll just get up and do it tomorrow. Uh, but I saw the new film snatched, which I was, um, uh, it's the Amy Schumer, uh, Goldie Hawn movie directed mm-hmm. by Jonathan Levine. Um, and I went in, you know, skeptical for a number of reasons. I didn't like train wreck Amy Schumer's last, uh, star vehicle. And I don't like the Jonathan Levine stuff that I've seen. I do love Goldie Hawn because, you know, how could you not? Um, yeah. Uh, and I'll say it's a good movie. Snatch is a good movie. Yeah. It has, you know, a pretty steady uh, rhythm of jokes. Um, it works as a narrative. It's not particularly deep from a character standpoint. You know, you can see it's about, you know, she's obviously going to, Amy Schumer and her mom are going to, you know, Goldie Hawn plays her mom. They're going to reconnect or something. Yeah. Like it's, uh, it's pretty boilerplate <laughs> to use that word again. Yeah. Um, but, uh, they get to do some, some, some fun stuff, some action stuff. Um, I, I feel like comedies, I'd said this about the Ghostbusters movie. This one's better than the Ghostbusters movie. Um, uh, and this has nothing to do with female leads. It's just a coincidence that I picked those two. Um, but comedies that have that are plot heavy and that especially if it's action heavy, often the leads end up being the least funny part of the movie in those yeah. cases because they're give it they have so much other so much burden to carry. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're busy saying, We gotta get out of here and stuff um, like that. Yeah, yeah, and doing stunts and stuff like that. Whereas the funniest parts of this movie are um Christopher Maloney, Wanda Sykes, and Joan Cusack. And they're the minor characters. Joan Cusack is maybe the funniest part of the movie and um this is a mild spoiler she doesn't even speak she is a completely silent character who gets some of the biggest laughs in the movie that's fun um uh and christopher maloney of course gets big laughs. he's like there when they're lost in the jungle he's like their grizzled guide you know yeah. and they're like starving and goldie Hawn like grabs a fruit off the off the tree 
and she's like, is this okay? And he's like, yeah, sure. And then like she takes a bite and he goes, Oh wait, did you mean to eat? I don't know. Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) You know, here's the thing. Let's talk about Christopher Maloney a little bit. You know, our standard gripe about John Hamm, Uh which is he's this good looking guy who plays a dramatic character, but that everyone makes a big deal about how funny he is. And he is funny. He is able to do that. That's fine. But it's just like, it's almost like his publicist tries to remind everybody, you know, he can be funny too, right? Yeah. Um, Christopher Maloney has been that his whole career. He's primarily a funny actor. Yeah. Cause the first but, thing I think of when I think of Christopan Maloney is what had America. Oh yeah, song, absolutely. Uh, which I then, saw before I saw Oz, even yeah. though he was on Oz before and I've never and, seen a single SVU. Yeah. And, and Oz and SVU, like he's, he's got these two very dramatic uh, characters, but you know, wet hot American summer. And then he's in, uh, you may recall that he's in fear and loathing in Las Vegas. He is the hotel clerk that the guy is oh, yelling at right. and he's playing him like super stereotypically gay. Yeah. Uh, right. and just like, now you listen to me. I have been fucked over <laughs> a fair amount by cops in my time. And now it's my turn. Like, and it's just, uh, it's really delightful. And, yeah. And yeah, and I, I feel like I've seen him in a number of other things that are really hilarious. And he's this dependably funny actor, but nobody ever hears about that the way we hear about John Hamm. No offense to John Hamm, but like that is. Yeah, well, I guess it just has to do with the, the way they introduced. Like, I feel like John Hamm, he probably feels and a lot of people feel like he has to prove that he's funny. Sure. Maybe because he's a good looking, he's a good looking And also guy. because of who Don Draper is. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And who he represents in the culture or whatever. Um, Chris Maloney never had that burden. So, um, yeah, but yeah, he is very funny. Um, yeah, and I guess yeah. neither Oz nor SVU, like there are shows that people have watched and SVU is very popular, but it's not the phenomenon that Mad Men was. So anyway, okay, sorry. We can right, move on. Um, yeah, that's it. So snatched is, is good. I mean, I feel like, if you're a person who, you know, is going to pay to go see a movie this weekend, I don't know, go see Guardians 2 again. Wait for Snatch to be on Netflix or whatever. But it's worth watching eventually. And it'll probably, it's the kind of comedy, like sort of shaggy dog comedy, that'll probably play, play funnier at home uh, anyway. You know what I mean? Then, Absolutely. I, yeah. love, I love that term, and I, and I love what it refers to. Um, so, All right, let's talk about some TV, or you talk about some TV. Okay, so um, I have three and a half things to say, I would say. Uh, All right. I watched a number of, uh, like a whole bunch of SCTV sketches, uh, speaking of Andrea Martin. Uh more specifically, I didn't like watch a bunch of different ones. I watched, you know, like if somebody watches uh, all the Wayne's World sketches. So I watched a uh, something of a pre- precursor to Celebrity Jeopardy called Half Wits, uh-huh. uh, in which <laughs> Eugene Levy plays a, a host on a Jeopardy-like program, and the whole idea is these uh, the other cast members, John Candy and uh, Andrea Martin and Martin Short, play these very specific type of idiots like in a way that just like when you think of hey uh, depict an idiot most people i think would go into a very uh, a very specific type of dumb guy voice um and john candy andrea martin and martin short uh they just each crafts this beautiful character uh that is unique and and also the 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 makeup 
for these characters is something special. Uh, John Candy, I would say, especially unsurprisingly is marvelous, but, uh, but they give him like this, this weird haircut. That's kind of, I don't know. It's kind of wavy and it it has sort of a new wave quality to it. Um, and he wears a suit and he just seems like somebody who's trying to be hip, but he is of course an idiot. And so, you know, he's always like squinting and be like, well, hang on. Um, I think so. I think it's this and just always wrong. And it's basically that these people just can't get anything right. Now, if you want to get to the nitty gritty, it's like, why do they have this show? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's called half wits. They've invited half wits. And yet Eugene Levy is, uh, is surprised that they're idiots, but his exasperation combined with these performances is delightful. And I forget how much, I loved SCTV and just some of the characters they created are, are uncomfortable. Like Martin Short's level of idiocy is borderline. Like there's something mentally wrong with him, but he's still exasperating. Uh, and it's, no. it was a delight. Um, where'd you watch this on YouTube? Oh, okay. So, cause you had mentioned earlier, either on or off mic that you watched a bunch of stuff in a hotel room. Yeah, we'll get, like, we'll get okay, to so that. Okay, so I was like, there's no way you weren't watching SCTV in our Orlando <laughs> hotel room. Right? I was up at 4.30 in the morning. Um, so, no, we will move on to what I did watch. You know what I learned the other day? A little What's bit that? of trivia. Um, the two... Uh, of the top ten cities in the country that have the most hotel rooms in the city, only two of them are in the U.S. Las Vegas and Orlando. I could see that. Makes sense. Yeah. Orlando as, uh, you know... Some great theme parks. Check out okay. uh, Wizarding World of Harry Potter, both Diagon go. Alley and Hogsmeade. There you go. Be sure to take that train in between because that's a that's a ride in of it in and of itself. Moving on. <clears throat> so yeah, we'll get to what I uh, what I did watch, and no, I'm not proud of it. Okay, <laughs> you're already defensive. We don't know what it is. Oh, you'll see. Okay. So uh, I got into my hotel, and I had so I stayed at a really shitty hotel. Uh, the night before because I couldn't get in on the, on the day I wanted to. So it was this $40 a night. It was in a bad neighborhood. I wish I had known that to the point where I thought like, I don't want to leave my room because I just, cause I had a, uh, my books, a big box uh-huh. of my books shipped to yeah. the hotel or rather to our, my, our friend Brian. And then he dropped it at the hotel. So I'm carrying this heavy looking box past these guys that are shady and clearly just smoking weed. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with that, but these guys smoking weed gives you re you know, (laughs) it's like, Oh good. Now their judgment is a little bit impaired. That's just what I want. And they're right outside my room. And so I go in, drop everything off and I'm starving and there's an IHOP, the most depressing IHOP in the world. So I go and get something to eat. And I thought, I won't, I really won't be surprised if I go and the door is standing open to my room and everything is gone. Uh, because who, they don't know that this box is filled with 50 copies of the most unsellable book in the world. Um, you know, and so, uh, so after that, I'm, I checked into the, Wyndham Resort Orlando where the uh, where the film festival That's was held fantastic. it was great and so uh, I got in Can I ask you that first night before you could get into the Wyndham yeah why wouldn't Brian just let you stay with him oh, well they have a, a baby now oh. and so uh, they he did say afterwards because once he dropped 
the the box off at the hotel. He said, because uh, I hung out with him uh, uh, the next day. And he goes, yeah, that was not a great neighborhood. You could have stayed with us. And I said, well, you get you don't have a guest room. He goes, our couch is better than that neighborhood. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, all right, fair enough. Um, so uh, so I didn't ask. Uh, was yeah, the thing, and I wouldn't have either. And so anyway, so I got to my hotel. So I, I, I don't like babies. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Uh, and so I got out of there as soon as I could and, uh, and got into this really nice hotel, laid down and thought, oh, I'm just going to see what's on TV. I don't think I ever actually watch TV when I'm at a hotel. Oh, are you kidding me? I watch so much TV in hotels. I don't usually spend t- that much time in the hotel itself. Like, I feel like... I feel like there are shows that are somehow only on in hotels because I, they always like I, when I flip, when I'm flipping channels at home, mm-hmm. I never seem to come across pit bulls and parolees. Sure. And yet I have watched marathons <laughs> of pit bulls and parolees in hotel rooms. And I fucking love that show. I don't know if you know the premise. I think I a, can piece it together. <laughs> it's a pit bull rescue organization. And the woman who runs it yeah. only hires people uh, who have been to prison. That's a neat idea. Yeah. And it's That's a, uh, very touching. Yeah. yeah. What I watched is along those lines, I watched two episodes. I was going to stop after the first, but then that second one, damn, they got me. <laughs> I watched two episodes of hoarders. Wow. I didn't realize that was still on. As, uh, these episodes seem to be about four years old, so okay. it's still showing. I don't know if they're right. putting out new episodes. I remember I watched, the first episode of hoarders and i was like this is fascinating but it is too gross for me to watch gross both in like i feel like these people are kind of being exploited but also like literally gross like it makes me feel like there's bugs on me when i'm watching it yeah uh it made me remember the cockroach that i saw in the previous room that i was in (laughs) and by the way i was not able to take a shower in that shitty room because the handle came off so It's a real plane, trains, and automobiles kind of moment. Wait, um, but when the handle came off, it didn't just—I I imagine spurting water right in your face as soon as the like, handle comes off. And then I'm like, I gotta get a bucket or something like that. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, no, the first. So here's the thing: is if the second episode had been like the first, I don't think I would have watched it because the first one, I don't, I really don't understand. I, re- I recognize that hoarding is a problem, mm-hmm. and it's a it, it's a mental issue and so of course i'm not going to understand it you know and i'm somebody who uh yeah i tend to i I, my office is not super clean and you know my closet is jam-packed with stuff but it's not garbage yeah and this this woman uh who admittedly was uh, she had fibromyalgia she had diabetes so like she was not in the best possible shape but she lived with her her two children and just mountains of garbage. And by the way, she's diabetic. Guess what she does with the used needles? Just throws them on the mountain of garbage. So hoarders brings in like a therapist to try to work with this person. And this woman, she had more than just like a hoarding thing. Like she clearly dealt with such tremendous shame that she just pushed the psychologist away immediately. And so the show realizing, well, we got to have a show. Uh, they talked her into letting, uh, some pest control people come in because there was a a cockroach problem, of course. And, uh, as they went in, there's like the thing, they just kept saying, this is bad. This is, and they, 
so they, you know, uh, they're in, in a perfect visual metaphor, I must say, they look at the wall and they see like a picture on, uh, uh, in a frame of like the two children, they lift it up. And sure enough, there are, I don't know, 50 cockroaches that go uh. scrambling that are just hanging out behind. So it's like, that's a good visual. Um, they pick up a, a, a soup can that is three inches thick with cockroaches. And then they'd found, and then they find, uh, just a, a colony of black widows. And so they say, they come out to the woman and they say like, all right, well, this is a very dangerous place for your children to be living. How old are her children? Uh, I'd say like 14. And the other one is very aware that she's about to turn 18 mm-hmm. and cannot wait to leave. Um, so it was just like, so then they, then they finally, they, pulling like people with hazmat suits to clean everything out and, and everything seems to be fine there at the end. Uh, And even the woman herself is like, this is definitely the way to live. But she, at the same time, like the emotional block and like the self pity, she feels there is nothing to be done about that. Mm -hmm. So the second one was about a a guy who is a former, uh, front man for a, a Canadian band called crowbar. Um, in the seventies and eighties and he'd played with everybody and he hoarded, but not garbage. He collected things like he went out of his way to buy certain types of things and he just bought them. He bought so many of them that his house was just full. Uh, so it's like, all right, that doesn't feel gross. There were, there were gross parts of his house Mm -hmm. just because he couldn't get to them, but it was different. You know, there weren't needles, uh, hanging out on piles of trash, but but that one was interesting because this is a guy who had a great deal of loss in his life. His daughter, at age 25, many years ago, had traveled to Japan and never came back. And no one ever heard from her again. Like, people don't know if she's dead or alive. They assume she is dead. Um, and that wow. was it. So, like, that's something. And then he lost his first wife. Then he lost his second wife. And so his his other children kind of hypothesized that, yeah, his stuff is never going to go away unless he gives it away. So he's not going to give it away because it's like the one stable thing in his life. So right. there, there's an element to that one that's actually really interesting. But anyway, so I watched two episodes of Hoarders okay. and then realized I'm exhausted. I'm going to take a nap uh, because this is not good for me. Um, but boy, two hours flew by because I can't, <laughs> especially with that first one because I'm like, they're going to clean out this house and then we're going to get really good before and after. It's going to be very satisfying for me. <laughs> and it was. And that's that's why I watch that stuff. If I do. Which Next I time you're in a hotel, see if you can find some pit bulls and parolees. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, <laughs> scan through. But anyway, so that was, uh, that was my hotel adventure as far as okay. what I watched. Um, I did watch... So this week, this week's Survivor was... Uh, pretty run of the mill. This is usually the time in the, in a season when there's usually about two or three episodes where the vote offs aren't that interesting. It's just almost like some, there's almost like housekeeping that needs to be done where the people that are, they're playing pretty hard, but they're just not the type that make it all the way through. And that's what this week was. Uh, this woman named Sierra, she's a, she's a good player. Um, but she just wasn't, spinning she wasn't keeping enough plates spinning and she trusted a few too many people so it wasn't that exciting of a exciting of a challenge now you sorry uh, exciting, exciting of an episode you didn't watch the most recent amazing race right did you watch the one before that yes the double u-turn yes i did okay we'll talk about that at the end okay uh and then also i watched 
the recent on Netflix Norm Macdonald stand-up special, mm-hmm. uh, Hitler's Dog Gossip and Trickery. And uh, so I think I've said before, I think Norm Macdonald is a genius. Yeah. He just, he just talks about uh, everything, and he just approaches everything from an angle that I just don't see in comedians of really any age. He just has his own cadence and has his own way of approaching things that, you know, he can make something funny just by his delivery. You know, he's, he, he's talking and he can get really dark. He talks about uh, suicide Mm -hmm. and he says, you know, people say, Oh, I don't understand how someone could do that. It's like, really? What kind of life are you living that you can't understand someone deciding that they don't want to live in this pain anymore? And, you know, uh, and he said, and then he talks about taking a trip to the rope store and it's, it, it's always located right next to the rickety stool store. Um, but then he, t- then he moves on to autoerotic asphyxiation and says that, you know, he said, I don't know if I would ever want to do that, uh, because the risk versus reward ratio seems not <laughs> quite there for me. And he said, and the thing is this, he goes, one of the big reasons I would never want to do autoerotic asphyxiation is that, you know, if you die, he says, look, I don't know what happens after you die. I don't know what happens to the soul. He goes, but I do know what happens immediately after you die. You are found. <laughs> and then he goes into this whole thing about how it doesn't matter how great a, uh, a father you are. If your son finds you at that moment, that's how they now remember you for the rest of their lives. And it's a really wonderful sketch. He's really, he's one of these means I didn't, I don't think I thought of him this way until his most, his, his last stand up special. And this one pays it off as well, where. He he has these extended bits. I always thought of him as like a, a little two or three sentence, uh, you know, set up punchline comedian. Maybe that's because of Weekend Update. But he he just really explores every topic that he's uh, discussing, and it's a it's a really good special. I liked it a lot. It's not. It's always you know an hour with Norm Macdonald. That's not bad. Um, I've seen I've seen him live once. Oh really? Uh, yeah, he dropped in at. Um uh, I don't remember who's comedy death ray or see you next Tuesday. One of those shows that isn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did see him live once and he did a bit. I'm not sure if there's any of the specials about, um, killers leaving their victims in a shallow grave. Oh yeah. You know, that? Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was uh, one of the funniest <laughs> things I've ever seen. And, and also an incredibly dark bit where yeah. he says, you know, I take this girl out into the woods and then I do that thing that makes me feel like God. And then, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah. And then it's, it's got, then he has that that line that I absolutely adore uh, from which he did on on his last appearance on Letterman where he says he goes uh, ID is not abbreviation the I stands for I and the D stands for identification <laughs> <laughs> seems like the D is doing most of the legwork there <laughs> all right um you gotta check out this special everybody okay. does it's marvelous amazing race although there was one thing i forgot to say about snatched actually okay. um just because i'm not sure if this is me or if this really happened but i want uh someone can ask amy schumer so the movie overboard starring goldie hon mm-hmm. the absolute funniest part of the movie is a uh fantasy sequence in which right. she's like dancing i think with Kurt Russell and then glitter starts to fall from the ceiling and then so as she's dancing and super happy she just keeps getting glitter in her mouth and it's just sort of like 
like spinning out the glitter, but yeah. still like spinning and happy. She seems like um, the type that could pull that off very well. Yeah, it's the funniest part of Overboard, um, which is not a great movie. Yeah. I know it has its fans. Um, so there's a part in Snatched where Amy Schumer is on the back of a, a motorcycle driven mm-hmm. by a, a hunk through yeah. the Ecuadorian countryside, and her hair keeps getting in her mouth, and she keeps spitting mm-hmm. her hair out. And I don't know if that was. Do you think that was an intentional? homage well with amy schumer you never quite know do you um i would say yes in that instance okay. it might be an intentional homage right. also because of the overboard does it's not a similar plot but the idea of being you know uh out of out of sorts out of your out of your element and now you're in this circumstance and goldie Hawn is a part of it yeah i'll i'll vote for homage okay um i wonder how many people uh saw it we'll, we'll even get that Anyway, okay, Amazing Race, the double U-turn episode. I just want to bring it up because um, I often talk about how Survivor has led people to over-strategize on shows. Like, not on Survivor. The strategy seems to be the the point on Survivor. But it's led um, Amazing Race people to talk about strategy and alliances and stuff a little too much. Yeah. Because that's not a big part of the show. But there is such a thing as under-strategizing. And intentionally eliminating Vank and Ashton is so stupid. Yeah. So stupid. You've got a double U-turn. Yeah. Eliminate someone who's a threat. Yeah, Vank and Ashton were not a threat to you. Yeah, they're not Get, the weakest team, but they're not the strongest either. There are strong teams left, and I didn't see last week, so I don't know who's left, but... But yeah, it's uh, get Redmond and uh, the the little fella out of there. <laughs> I don't like them, by the way. Uh, they're the uh, well, it's the two guys, it's the right? Two the guys. only two, yeah. And here's why I don't. I, I guess the, the the other guy I don't have a problem with, but Redmond got on my nerves because he said in like one of the con- testimonials or whatever, like why he thought they were a good team. He said not as a joke. He said we're the only all-male team so emotions don't have to enter into it <laughs> that's something he said uh david so can I, you imagine if you and i went on the amazing race it would be nothing but emotions <laughs> um yeah it's yeah. but the same I, i'll say this not that not i think that's a dumb attitude but he was a soldier right like my guess is he has a very specific idea of what masculinity looks like yes yeah um, female soldiers out there yeah well that's um, yeah yeah, uh, including and they're just crying. They're just crying on the battlefield all the time. Uh, no, well, uh, one of the contestants is in the mil- the military. The woman who's with the Boston cop. That's right. Yeah, she's she's in the military as well. Yeah, it's um, yeah the li- anyway. the little fella as you call him. I, it, he's kind of amazing uh, from a climbing standpoint. He's, uh, it's he's, astonishing. He's incredibly physically fit. I mean, yeah, because that team was they were also in going back to like the first or second episode. They were the only team to beat the rowing team yeah. on the first try when they had the same. Yeah. Uh, for those who, uh, everyone has turned it off, turned this off sure. right now. But in subsequent attempts, you got more of a head start if you weren't able to do it the first time. And of course, everyone wasn't able to beat these canoers the first time. They're like, that's what they do. Yeah. Except Matt and Redmond. That's who it is. Matt and Redmond. Yeah. First time. Yeah. They're they're incredible. Which is why you get them out. Yeah. You're you're if you show up, they're, they're not going to do another U turn before Matt and Redmond. You you turn Matt and Redmond. Yeah. That's Vank and Ashton. That's so stupid. Yeah, and I feel like it is. Maybe I'm talking about it as under strategizing, but maybe on Matt and Redmond's part, it is strategy. Maybe they 
because they've been talking shit about Vankinesh and from the beginning, yeah. and maybe it's to get the heat off of them, to get everyone on their side. Like, hey, we all hate Vank and Ashton, right? So no one has time to go. Wait, you guys are the threat. Well, bring in some survivor terminology here. Uh-huh. Um, there's the idea of there's the physical threat, there's the strategic threat, and there's the social threat. And so, and so, you you play a physical game, a strategic game, or a social game. Ideally, you play all three. And so. You know, uh, Vank and Ashen did not play a very good social game, and other people took advantage of that. And they said, yeah, nobody really likes them. So what we can do is, in order to make sure that they leave, and incidentally that I don't, uh, let's start shoring up these relationships. Let's play a social game, even though they're... Do- it is a race by its very nature. It's just you, your team running ahead and hopefully beating this other team. But with these U-turns and stuff, there is a social element which requires a certain degree of strategy. And so, yeah, they've been talking shit about them for a while. Since and, the first episode. Yeah. And even though they're the ones that uh, betrayed Vank and Ashton, right? Not betrayed, but, you know, they, they, w- they made, went back on their word. They Yeah, they made a dumb agreement to begin with. Yeah. They shouldn't have made because, yeah. again... Amazing race isn't survivor. You don't make alliances. Stupid. Right. Yeah. Although, at the, but that's the thing is we saw elsewhere on this season where the social game allows people to say, Oh, do you want here? Let me help you with that. Or here's a bit of advice. Like when I forget her name, but went Brooke crybaby. That's her. Well, there's two crybabies actually. Okay. Um, there's Brooke who's the literal crybaby because she literally cries. Yeah. And there's what's his name? The big, uh, uh, oh, the bearded guy. The bearded guy. Is it Mike? I think it's Mike. Yeah. Who is a, like, a, he's a fucking baby. I have to say, he gets my nerves more than anyone, maybe. It's frustrating because uh, when he's, it's one of those situations where it's a little bit too close to me in this instance, where when things are going well, he's a very genial guy and he, mm-hmm. and he can be very encouraging and, and, and uplifting of his teammate. But the moment things go bad, like he is an unpleasant person to be around. Um, and so, yeah, and it's, but that's the thing is amazing race doesn't always go great. So, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, I'm still rooting for team fun. Obviously, obviously um, they are they're, you know, they're the best. They I be best hope they're again. still here. Uh, uh cause yeah, I didn't I see last know, week. So, um, but yeah, they're just, I always like it when somebody is, and this happens on Survivor, it happens on Amazing Race, when people are like, I can't believe I actually got here, and I'm still here. How is that even possible? <laughs> and they're just, you know, and obviously, like, if things go badly, that that can bring out the, the negative part. But at the same time, I don't know, it's... Uh, I'm I'm excited for them. I hope they I hope they win for not merely because I like them, but because no one will enjoy winning as much as they will. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I I just hope Matt and Redmond don't win because it would it's, be like not only because Redmond's a tool and I don't like him, but uh, it would just be boring for them to win. It's such a. It's like when the two hockey players who I liked, uh, I don't remember right. their names, but. It was su- after maybe two episodes. Like, okay, we all know how this is going to go. It's a foregone right. conclusion. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and yeah, it's. I do like there to be some some surprise there at the end. Yeah. Um. So, and it, it would be nice if Matt and Remen were in the top three, but came in third. That'd be pretty good. That's I'd always like that. the way I like it to go.